0: It's 1977, and a pair of wacky droids get a special message from a smoking hot girl to deliver to a super cool guy whose mission is to have the summer of his life. The movie Star Wars.
1: Everybody and welcome to Unspooled.
0: Unspooled.
1: I'm Amy Nicholson, and I am
0: Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time list, the 2007 edition, to see if they really are as good as people say. Do they hold up, and how have they influenced the films that we watch now? Amy. Last week, we were talking about the best of the decade. This week, we're taking a quick break to talk about a classic Star Wars on the eve, or I guess if you're listening to this right now, it might even be out in your neck of the woods, Rise of Skywalker, the completion of the nine-part series Uh, that is the Skywalker. I mean, what do you even call a nine-part series?
1: I would call it a completion with an asterisk. I still wow. don't believe it's going to be completed.
0: All right, she doesn't I've been believe it. in
1: 30 years. If I never see C3PO again for 30 years, then I'll say, okay, maybe. Oh, it's
0: done. wow. Okay, well, I mean, I will not have you over for my Disney Plus watching of the animated show <laughs> Droids, which is uh, the Shining Jewel or maybe Ewok Celebration, Ewok Adventures. Remember those? They're not on Disney Plus. Why are you holding them back, Disney Plus? I want to see the two Ewok made for TV movies with that one girl who looked like Drew Barrymore. Why were there kids on the Ewok planet? I don't know. Amy, you love Star Wars. I know it. Don't hide from it. I saw you for Halloween. You were dressing up as your favorite Rogue One characters because you go that deep. Um, as, I far was, as I was covered in blood. It was real gory. <laughs> <laughs> Is
1: that too soon? That's no, too soon.
0: I am so excited uh, to talk to you about Star Wars. Um, but I want to also just look back at the best of decades. So many people have been writing in. Uh picking up movies that we haven't talked about. Uh, there's a lot out there. I think what we've been trying to do is talk about a lot of movies. I don't think we're coming to a consensus on what should be on the list, but really what's worthy of attention. I mean, this decade has been full of amazing, amazing films. And I think if we've done anything so far, we've gotten people to do some amazing double features. I mean, Melancholia and MacGruber. I mean, that's that's the night.
1: <laughs> I really enjoyed now the people who've been... Uh, tweeting at me the text they sent to their loved ones as they watched The Paperboy for the first time.
0: Oh, yeah, you really, you really you really upset people with that. They thought that was definitely how did this get made material. Um, all right, I'm going to ask you a question. Amy, you have not seen Rise of Skywalker yet, have you? Not yet, no. All right, I have not either. We do not have any spoiler information. We are not those readers. Let's make a Star Wars Deadpool list right now. Does anyone die in this final movie? If so, who are they? What do you got? Who do you got?
1: I think yes. Okay. I think yes. I think they're going to kill either C-3PO or R2-D2.
0: Okay. I think that C-3PO, because he kind of started, will die. I also think Poe Dameron's going to die. Oh, do you? I think that that's kind of the heroic death that we were trying to get with uh, Han Solo and Return of the Jedi, but we never got. And then we had to kind of kill him off many years later in Force Awakens. I think Poe Dameron has a laser target on his back. But I think Kylo Ren lives.
1: I don't mind if Kylo Ren lives to live on, at least on internet gifts, but I will say this. My personal bet is which character will cry a single tear at that death? Mm. You know that I'm putting my money on Porg.
0: I want you one think porg. porg? Tier. Yeah, I want uh, one porg tier. Well, I, I mean I'm going to put my money on the uh, the bromance of John Boyega uh Finn's character. I think he's going to cry the tear. Uh I'm excited. I am optimistic for Rise. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh you know, I I believe in the power of JJ to bring this this bad boy home.
1: I do wonder though. I mean, do you think R2D2 can cry? Like, do you think he? Do you think he feels? Pain?
0: Oh, R two D two can get upset. I mean, sometimes he'll go back and forth on one leg, and you can kind of get his emotional status based on that. that. Yeah, just
1: means I have to pee.
0: No, droids don't pee. He doesn't pee. He (laughs) doesn't pee. I'm very curious. I'm very curious emotionally how it will be. I already know that I need to prep, so I bought two tickets. I have a Friday ticket. I have a Sunday ticket, and uh, I can go see it twice because I need two times to see it. When I saw Phantom Menace, I saw them both back-to-back because I need one just to kind of enjoy it, and then one is maybe more the reality check of it.
1: So you treat his movies like I treat Tarantino movies.
0: Look, I mean, I treat Tarantino movies like I treat Star Wars movies. (laughs) I need to get it all in. There's a lot of information coming at you. Um, I
1: mean, you know, the nihilist in me just wants everyone to die.
0: Of course, uh, which is not going to happen. Uh, but, you know, we're talking about some of our favorite Star Wars characters, and we sent a call out to our unspooled community to call in and kind of stump for their favorite unsung hero. Who is someone in the Star Wars universe that you love, that you wish got some more respect, that you just want to give a little shout-out to as we kind of put a close to this uh, nineology.
2: My favorite obscure Star Wars character is the poor droid getting his feet burned in Jabba's palace during Return of the Jedi.
0: My favorite small Star Wars character has got to be a long snout. I mean, he is a fucking snitch for the Empire on Tatooine, Mm -hmm. but he's got a pretty sweet long snout and, like, a really high-pitched voice. So, long snout.
2: My favorite character from Star Wars that never gets enough credit is R4-D5, the little red droid who blew his own motivator at the beginning of the story so that Luke and his uncle would have to buy R2-D2, thus setting the whole series in motion.
3: The best obscure Star Wars character is Grand Admiral Thrawn. He's really cool. He's a member of the Empire, and he's a really good strategist. I want to voice my support for Wedge and Tilly's. He's the ultimate background player, a guy who does his job, does it well, but looks to take no credit.
1: Um, Ever since I was a little girl, I was a big fan of Bib Fortuna. He creeped me out, and
3: in a very mysterious way, and I liked the noises he made.
0: You know, I appreciate some love for Bib Fortuna, one of the classic uh, Return of the Jedi characters who I love They had the action figure of. His head was so perfect. It was so bulbous. Um, I think the one thing that Lucas did really well uh, and Star Wars does really well is creating so many different species. They are, I mean, to a certain degree, I can't even understand how you know, species work in this world because, all right, so every world, I mean, every time they land on a planet in Star Wars, it seems that they're landing in like one, I mean, it's like, yeah, we have to go to, you know, we have to go to Endor. Well, how the fuck would you know where to land? That's like saying we'd have to go to Earth. Like, what are you, what are you picking? You're picking San Francisco, you're picking Beijing. What do what you pick? Like, it's so vastly different, but yet it seems like wherever they are, it's a very cross-cultural uh, melting pot. So I think that that's, uh, you know, one of the nicest things. I mean, I know Star Trek really looks, Beautifully into the future. But I guess in the past, we were very much mixed.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think my favorite obscure Star Wars character, having just rewatched the original, is, you know, in that very first laser blast shootout when they're mm. on the plane and, like, Leia's running around. She's like, oh, yeah. gosh, I have to send them a message out. There's, like um, – a helmet or maybe a severed head inside the helmet that goes clattering in the hallway. Yeah. And one of the stormtroopers has to do kind of a little skip jump over it. Like, Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like him.
0: Well, do you also like the character that bonks his head, you know, when the door comes down? Classic. I also
1: like him. Yeah. Classic.
0: Classic, classic uh, tomfoolery in the stormtrooper department. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, let's get into it. Amy, we're tackling a, a major, major classic that no one has dared talk about ever before. Let's unspool it! The year is 1977. A Super Bowl ad costs $125,000. The son of Sam Killer, David Berkowitz, is finally arrested in Yonkers, and yes, Amy, as covered in our Annie Hall intro, Nike did actually draw inspiration from the 1977 execution of Gary Gilmore, whose last words were, just do it. And the shoe company wasn't the only one influenced by the murderer. Gary Gilmore's story inspired Jack Nicholson's performance in The Postman Always Rings Twice and countless songs by artists like the Adverts and the Police. In fact, Tommy Lee Jones won an Emmy for his portrayal of Gilmore in The Executioner's Song, an adaptation of the novel, which One? Norman Mailer, the Pulitzer Prize. Anyway, the big movies this year are Annie Hall, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Saturday Night Fever, and today's film, Star Wars, which is ranked number 13, lucky 13, on the 2007 AFI Top 100 list, up two points from its number 15 ranking in 1997. Let's take a listen to a clip. Now be careful, all two.
4: (laughs) he
1: made a fair move
4: screaming
2: about it can't help you i don't have it. it's not wise to upset a Wookiee. but sir nobody worries about upsetting a droid it's because a droid don't pull people's arms out of their sockets when they lose wookies are known to do that i see your point sir i suggest a new strategy Ardu. let the Wookiee win
0: amy who's in it What's it
1: about? Well, I'm still caught up on this poor, poor man not getting royalties for his entire life that it goes on without him in perpetuity his royalties? after he's dead.
0: For for a, a person who's executed, I'm kind of okay uh, with him not getting royalties. Uh,
1: do you think Happy Gilmore took its name from him too? How many things just are Gilmore? Oh the Gilmore gosh. Girls. Gilmore
0: Girls. Oh my, we got to get the Gilmore guys on this.
1: <laughs> Star Wars, who's in it and what is it about, you yeah. ask. I'm sure a lot of people need help with this. Um, they've never heard of this small art house movie. Star Wars is written and directed by George Lucas. It is the story of a rebellion in action. On the side of the Rebels, you have Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia Organa, played by Carrie Fisher, you have Harrison Ford as Han Solo, and a couple nice little droids who I happen to like a lot. On the side of Evil, you have Peter Cushing as Grand Moff Tarkin, and of course, the terrifying, terrifying Darth Vader, who is acted by a bodybuilder named David Prowse, but voiced by James Earl Jones.
0: Well, you know, it's so interesting you said, you know, very snarkily that this is a a small art house movie. But, you know, when this movie did come out, this was not, it was not launched as a blockbuster. I mean, so much so that Lucas was like, I don't want to have a premiere. I think this movie is going to tank. I'm going to go to Hawaii with my buddy, uh, Steven Spielberg. And that's actually where they came up with the, uh, the first idea for Indiana Jones. But this was you know, leading to be a flop. This is not what it has become. Now, what it's become is a whole other argument, but we have to look at this movie like this, and I say to you, Amy, just knowing you, okay. I want to understand what your your hot take on Star Wars is.
1: Whoa, okay. Do, do you
0: have a hot take?
1: I don't know if I have a hot take. We'll see. Okay. we'll see. We'll see what all my planetary takes are. I mean, I will say I was thinking when we were getting ready for this episode that – Among probably every single film on this list, I don't know what a world is before Star Wars. I don't know a world without Star Wars. I think I knew about Star Wars before I knew about anything else in existence. I was asking myself, like, did you know about Star Wars and the Force before you knew about the Bible? And probably, even though my parents were very religious. I don't know of another film on this list of another piece of pop culture that has just always been a part of my life to the fact like I I can't imagine not knowing it. It is like growing up Catholic to grow up knowing about Star Wars. I I probably knew Darth Vader's name before I knew Ronald Reagan was the president.
0: Well, look, I'm going to say something that probably no one's ever said, but it's our American modern myth, right? Yeah, really heady shit that I'm talking about. No, but I mean, (laughs) there is something about this film that puts it shoulder to shoulder with Wizard of Oz. It is a classic film that is timeless. And I did something really interesting for this watch of the film. Um, I watch it with my five-year-old, who has never seen Star Wars. Uh, I didn't feel he was old enough yet. And uh, I thought, oh, this would be really fun because I've seen this movie. It's a part of me so much, like we just talked about. I feel the same exact way that you do. And I thought, oh, this would be really fun to watch it through my five-year-old's eyes. And it was amazing to watch him get some of it, not get some of it. And, you know, the thing that I thought was so interesting was, you know, he's kind of blown away by all the creatures and things like that. But, you know, obviously technology is advanced. He's seen more advanced stuff. But the moment that got him, the moment that really like shook him to his core was that Obi-Wan Kenobi essentially dies or is defeated because as they're doing their lightsaber battle at the end, he's like, well, he's going to win, right? He's going to win. And like, well, you have to watch. You have to watch. And, uh, and you know, he, he, he yes, he wins, but he doesn't win the fight. And that really like watching him process this idea that like good doesn't always win. And especially I think now being a dad in the last five years, watching all children's entertainment, it's something that doesn't often happen. Uh, in children's films you know this is like this idea that like no good always prevails and yes good does prevail in this movie but that's a pretty shocking moment that you don't really have in children's films
1: no that's true and you're right I'm thinking about it in context of because I I guess when I say I grew up in a world always knowing Star Wars that includes the sequels too yeah it's all been one giant text for me
0: you can't really separate it right because it becomes this big It's this entity that we live under. It's a giant cloud in our sky.
1: So hearing you describe your son's experience, I was thinking, what if you were a kid and there weren't sequels to this? What if that was just how Star Wars was going to be? He was gone, and you didn't know that he was going to be eventually played by Ewan McGregor. You you didn't know that you were never going to see that character again in different forms. I'll just say up front, I'm sorry about this. And if I get yelled at, well, I've never seen any of the prequels, so I don't know actually – anything.
0: Honestly, the prequels um, just give you explanations to things that you really don't need explanations for. And there are some good moments in them and there are some really bad moments in them. I I don't have a, I don't want to stump and be like, George Lucas killed my child. Because I think that argument is bullshit because I think no one can kill your memory of liking the thing that is good because the thing that is good remains good. You are not affected by the things around the thing that is Good. I don't I don't understand it. That whole Ghostbusters thing drove me nuts. Like, no, 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 Ghostbusters is still Ghostbusters. Nothing has changed. But whatever. Yeah. Uh yeah.
1: but whatever. But yeah, I mean my family was not like a crazy movie family. We wouldn't we weren't massive movie mm-hmm. people. My parents are book readers and folk music listeners. And yet, when I was thinking about it on the way here, my house was so covered in Star Wars stuff in a way uh-huh. that is surprising because that's not who my family you would think is. But I had a lightsaber. I had a bunch of little planes. I had a Darth Vader head with all the toys in it. Oh, my yeah. mother had a long braid of hair that she had cut off at one point, And she had it coiled up and I would always take it out and I would put it on my head and I would be Princess Leia. And so that this film has always been a major part of my life when I wouldn't even say I was grown up in a household of fans. Well. That it, it's, it's fascinating.
0: You know, this has been so, you know, examined to death. And this is a part of the issue that I'm having with this whole episode is like, How can we talk about this movie in a way that is different than the multiple podcasts that have been devoted to this film, to this franchise, to the arguments on Twitter? And, you know, and I don't know. We're going to go through it and we'll kind of figure it out. But I, I do think that the one thing that people always talk about hand in hand with Star Wars, especially the first one, is Joseph Campbell, The Power of Myth. And I think this movie is so rooted in a very rudimentary story structure that, is so engaging, you know? And the people I think try to duplicate, it's sort of like Save the Cat, like where you're just kind of hitting beats, but this is done, I think in a very artistic way, it's influenced by that and it's influenced by serials. And it kind of captured a lot of things that probably were engaging to your parents from a literature perspective, from the fact of the serials, but also from you as a kid, you're seeing space the same way I am. It's like, it in this weird moment, it kind of combines so many different elements that were familiar.
1: Well, right, and I think exactly to that point, part of what makes it challenging to really talk about is we've always grown up in a post-Star Wars world where the idea of stories that have these beats about myth, you know, that felt old-fashioned and classic and pleasurable, yeah. like new again in the 70s, have been our entire life. You right. know, I was thinking about this idea of like this feedback loop of nostalgia that Star Wars represents, you know, that you have George Lucas who wanted to make a movie to honor Flash Gordon and mm-hmm. all the serials that he loved when he was a kid – couldn't get the rights to Flash Gordon because they wanted Fellini to make a Flash Gordon movie. So uh, I was would have like, loved
0: to have seen that. Yeah,
1: so he's like, you know, I'll just make my own version of this kind of a story. So right. he does a film that is an homage to an older type of cinema. But then because of the film he does, we have only ever grown up in a world that's an homage to this film. Everything that's like nostalgic from this film. So
0: we've- I mean, I you look at some of our like best filmmakers who I think are of the now, the filmmakers of now, that are directly influenced by them. And whether or not they're making films that are- like them, but we could, you know, or they're making films just that this is in their DNA. I mean, look at John Favreau, who you know is behind Iron Man, but now is doing The Mandalorian, which it's a director who grew up loving Star Wars, getting to play in that sandbox, and you know, I think a lot of people, you know, want to kind of do that and forge their own path. It, it's basically the toys that we had as a kid, and you're seeing directors do that. I think in a, in the Marvel world a little bit, but um, I think The Mandalorian is kind of this really interesting. Um, merger of a, of a filmmaker who grew up, you know roughly in our age group who's ga- now getting to make the thing that he always wanted to make. He gets to make the backyard playing of Star Wars figures into an actual TV show.
1: That's fair, but in a way, I feel sorry for him that he doesn't get to have the challenge that Lucas had, which is just mm. make your own thing.
0: right. I hear that.
1: you know and and well, maybe this is a good opening just to say since you're talking about Disney plus and things. We should probably say, like, what format of Star Wars we watch.
0: Yes. So um, last week when we were recording the after, we told you that um, I was going to watch the Disney Plus version of it because it is the latest version of the film. I think they've tapered off some things. There are versions online that you can watch that are D. De- Uh, special editionized. I recently sold my LaserDiscs, my definitive collection, Star Wars LaserDiscs. So sad, so sad. Uh, But yes, so that's what I watched. What did you watch?
1: I wrestled with this, actually. Mm. I I really wrestled with this. And ultimately what I decided, because you know, I'm very anti-Disney and giving them any money and any sort of support at all. Of course. Finally, what I did is I found this online. Okay. Getting it out of my bag right now. Oh,
0: this is what you were gonna this is what you're talking about. I
1: found about. a VHS tape of Star Wars from nineteen ninety-two from okay. a thrift store in Omaha. So I ordered that.
0: Okay, and now this though has some remastering. No, it right? doesn't. Nothing. Mm-mm. Interesting. No, it was okay. before
1: they remastered it in the late nineties. It's okay. from ninety two. So wow. it is. Wow.
0: This I remember this box is very cool. But I decided to watch the Disney Plus one because I wanted to also look at it from the point of view of what is added, and and uh, it still feels really clunky. I mean, ultimately, like, that's what I was going to say. Like, there's something very clunky about all the extra CGI. It, you can tell every moment. It, like, we're lingering on things for seconds that you, like, the pacing here is off. Like, why are we here when we should be moving over here? It It's a real weird... Addition.
1: Well, I will say it was nice to watch, like, say, the speeder pull up in front of Moe's Isley's cantina and not have an extra 30 seconds of animals running yes. around for no reason. Yeah. However, I will say the one problem with my VHS copy was that the colors were so dim that C3PO was just beige and I couldn't <laughs> see a lot of things, to be honest. However, it felt like everything looked a little bit more artificial. I don't know if in the later versions I've seen, some of the stuff has been smoothed out even more where you can't see how clumsy it is that Darth Vader's mask is wobbling a bit on his head.
0: Well, you see, that's what I really loved about watching it on Disney+. I thought it looked so clean and clear. I, I don't think I've sat down and watched this movie and it just felt like it was very vibrant to me, but not in a way that detracts, not in a way that felt like, oh, um... This is not the way it's supposed to be seen. It was too cleaned up. I was like, oh, it sounds great. It looks great. They restored the 20th Century Fox logo, which I was very happy with. That is part of my viewing experience of these movies. But I I fully take issue with the special editions and what they've added. I think the best version of it is Empire because they do the least. Um, But I don't want to judge this movie on... Choices made after the fact, right?
1: No, that's fair. That's fair. But I do want to say, when I was holding that VHS tape in my hand, it really felt like I was holding a lot of the reason why I do feel like we live in this nostalgia loop that is driving me insane. Mm -hmm. Which is, I think that there is a really direct correlation between the fact that, you know, Star Wars comes out in 77- VHS players come out a few years. After that, they become more popular and mainstream. And so if you are Jean-Favreau, you owned that VHS tape and you watched it over and over again. Whereas George Lucas was picturing the serials he loved. Sometimes maybe he could see them late night on TV, but he was given the room to imagine his own stories. And I feel like there's a real problem with having this movie that it wasn't just that we loved the idea of it. It's that we just loved that one movie and kept watching it. And I think that is what kept us in this world.
0: Well, to your point... I think what Star Wars does, and I think Ben Hurd did this a little bit, as we talked about, but it starts to put merchandise on equal footing with the artistic product, right? I can't think of Star Wars without everything you just described. The lightsabers, the VHS cassettes, the DVD cassettes, the laser discs, the action figures. Going, I have vivid memories of going to the beach with all my Star Wars guys in my sand pail, losing them because I didn't realize you couldn't really wash them in the ocean without them also being pulled out to sea. It's a very (laughs) tough moment. I remember wholeheartedly doing well on a report card and my dad buying me a Rancor pit monster action figure. I like lusting after the back box. You know, when you get a Star Wars figure on the back, they'd have all the other characters. And you'd be like, well, what do I I have left? And, you know, there was an obsession with – wanting all the things from the thing. And I think, I think that that even leads now into our selfie culture. It's like, it's not enough to meet or experience something. You have to take a picture of yourself being there or it didn't happen. And, and I, I think you could draw a line to Star Wars as being the, the thing that kicked that off.
4: Well,
1: yeah, I mean, my Darth Vader head means a lot to me and it yeah. did for a really long time. And I still have this bitterness in my heart Surprise! Yeah. Uh, but no, when I was in college, I had my Darth Vader head with me at college, yeah. and I lived with a roommate who uh, was my boyfriend's best friend who hung out with some really shady people. He like made his own GHB in our kitchen and oh, ruined wow. all my pots and pans. It was a real problem. <laughs> but he hung out with some shady people who did not go to school that he uh, was friends with, and one of them, a guy who worked at Long John Silver, stole all the good figures from my Darth Vader head, and I have never gotten over it. He left me all the Ewoks, which I love the Ewoks. Yes. He, just, he just didn't want the Ewoks. But no, I read that in 1985, there were more Star Wars figures on the planet than there were United States citizens.
0: Wow. I mean.
1: Can you that, imagine? I, I, mean, mean, I mean, we lived it, but it's like, it still seems unimaginable. Well, but
0: think of it like this. You know, if every kid had a minimum of three, you know, and, and, and that's and that's a small number. I don't know any kid who just had three Star Wars figures. You know, like most kids are having, let's say- you know, five to six Star Wars figures. Uh that's yeah, of course they're gonna yeah. outnumber them. You there are there are more. It's everyone's having, you know, everyone's uh Octomom.
1: Gosh, and if each one of Octomom's kids has at least five figures. <laughs> That's it. That's what we're
0: talking about. Um, you know, I wanted to say something that I, uh, just to put a cap on this merchandising thing. but I
1: don't know if we're going to put a cap on it, man. Not a
0: cap. I mean, but I don't know how much we can go into it without really uh, pulling out a lot of stats and charts. But what I found so interesting, though, is at the end of watching this movie with uh, my son, we were going up to bed. And he's like, where's my flashlight? Where's my flashlight? And I was like, oh, it's over here. And he took out that flashlight. And he started dancing around the room with this flashlight, just a regular flashlight. I mean, it's kind of regular. It looks like um, it looks like a butterfly. And, and just, you know, is tra- rolling on the floor and, and doing all these lightsaber moves. And he's never seen that. Like, he's never seen lightsaber fights. And I have to say, when you watch the lightsaber fight in here, it's pretty... Unimpressive, I mean, comparatively to what we what we get to now um and I watched that joy, but I also watched that immediate want of a lightsaber he didn't know that that existed i mean I guess in his general sense, he knew lightsabers, but like that want to play with it. And, he, and that night, he's like, I want a lightsaber for Christmas. Can I get a lightsaber for Christmas? I was oh, like,
1: no. You were worried about this because they're so expensive at the new Disneyland. Oh, I
0: mean, they're very expensive. Uh, yeah. You, well, I mean, I can get into Galaxy's Edge issues. I
1: have this inflatable sword in my car. Do you want it?
0: No, I got it. Yeah, tell him it's a right. lightsaber.
1: <laughs> Here, kid, I got you a lightsaber.
0: But I mean, I think that there is something so tactile. And that's what I guess I'm getting into is about this movie. And Did what, you tell
1: your kid about Darth Vader being Luke's dad?
0: Of course not. That's a big reveal.
1: I didn't know. I didn't know if I don't, to me, I don't know if you know that. I don't know. I don't remember learning that. So I don't know if people learn that
0: stuff. No, I mean, I watched it happen in real time. Uh, My wife understands it without having seen, I don't think any of them, but Force Awakens. But I just thought there was something about that world. And that feels, especially these movies, these first three, that like you, you can, they're like giant play sets. They feel real. And this is my kid interacting with this world for the first time his first instinct is I want that. I want to play with that. And it's, and you know, it's, this movie is the first movie to make $300 million. So, you know, you think about all these people going and seeing this movie, this movie becomes such a giant hit and I, I have to imagine the effect that I had on me in, you know, whenever I saw it in the late 70s and my son now seeing it in 2019, it's like, it's the same. And there's something really interesting about that. The other movie my, my kids saw, my, both my kids, and they're obsessed with, is E.T. And they love E.T. You were E.T. worried
1: that they wouldn't.
0: I, I was nervous. I didn't know. And they love E.T.
1: What I think is really heartening about what you're saying is that you're describing Star Wars belonging to kids. Right. And I like that thought. I like the idea of us being able to let kids own a piece of Star Wars because it is so strange how much we have this inability to separate Star Wars from our own spines as who we are as people. If I can use sort of a fire analogy that I'm coming up with clumsily off the top of my head, mm-hmm. adults are sucking up so much of the oxygen that the next generation of kids isn't able to keep the flame going. Right. Do you know what I mean? Well, it's
0: like adults saying, this is mine, and this is this. And yeah. Like, it's You're like- a
1: dumb kid. Because what I hear is like, young kids really like the prequels. They're like, I thought they were fun.
0: Uh, yes, of course. And look, here's a thing. Do I like Jar Jar Binks? No, absolutely not.
1: And that actor deserves death threats. Exactly.
0: By the way, I'm very excited uh, that he is hosting a Disney Plus game show about Star Wars. It's going to be like Legends of the Hidden Temple. I support
1: him for that, and I'll never watch it.
0: Um, But what I appreciate about Jar Jar, even though I hate Jar Jar, and we're not even supposed to be talking about Jar Jar, but we are. I'll say this: it is for kids. If kids like Jar Jar, then it's good. You know, I remember people hating the Ewoks. Like that was the that was the beginning. Like people who are younger love the Ewoks. And, like, the teenager, like, fuck those Ewoks. It was supposed to be Wookiees. You know, and and back then, everyone was like, well, Darth Vader fell in a volcano. How do we know this information? It was, like, weird things that we were passing on to each other. Like, you know.
1: Darth Vader fell in a volcano.
0: (laughs) But, I I mean, but, like, you know, it's like, but it was, like, all these things, like, what was right and what I heard and this was this and that was that. But it's, like, I do believe that that this movie is for kids. And I think what I love about the Porgs is the same, you know, yes, and sometimes it works for me. Porgs. Love. Ewoks, no strong opinion on. Jar Jar, not a fan. I
1: like it when Chewbacca eats a porg. Last Jedi is my second favorite Star Wars movie. Oh, interesting. I like that. I I feel the same
0: way. Well, let's get into this movie, and I will say this. The minute the music hits, the minute that scroll comes up, I go, this is an instant classic. This is in the top 10 of the best movies of all time. It has to be, because within the first 20 seconds of the movie, this is iconic. This has been parodied. This has been, like, John Williams' score, you know, obviously for this has, I mean, had such a life. It's ranked number one on AFI's 100 years of film scores. Uh, and for good reason. And the scroll, it, like, it's been parodied so much. But that first moment is, it. like, I'm like, oh, yeah. This is a instant classic. And I don't, and look, I love Raiders. And I love a lot of the films we've talked about. But that, this is the first time that from moment one, you're like, Instant classic.
1: Can I just say, by the way, you do not have a mirror in front of you. So I'm going to describe what you yeah. look like right now. You are wearing a white sweater. Uh-huh. You have these black headphones on, Yeah. ones on both ears. Yeah. You look like Princess Leia. And I keep <laughs> looking at you and kind of trying not to laugh.
0: Oh, you can laugh at me all you like. <laughs> I, uh, I, I take it as a compliment. Uh, by the way, uh, I read Carrie Fisher's book. Uh, uh you know the princess diaries which is a, a great read i mean she's you know everything that she writes is really uh, entertaining uh but she hated those did you know that Did she hated those buns she hated, the buns? She hated those buns like lucas tried to make her lose weight before the filming mm-hmm. and she did you know very much like wizard of oz uh but yeah she just basically went along with everything because uh she didn't want to be fired and she was eager to kind of comply with everything going on. But uh, I do love that she did not like the bagel buns that she had on her head. I mean, they are they are bizarre, but they're actually like that perfect level of futuristic. I think Blade Runner does this really well too, where it's like, it it's just odd enough to be different, but not odd enough to be like, I've watched so many shitty movies for how did this get made where they're ripping off Star Wars, and it's like oh the the difference is so small, like Star Crash watch Star Crash, and you're like, here's a guy who read the novelization of Star Wars and then wrote a movie and it's j- you could do you could do this movie so it's it's like the razor's edge of this movie working or not working and when this movie is first tested, I mean and I don't know if this is apocryphal, but I believe. You know he's watching it with all of his his friends, which is like Coppola and, uh, and Spielberg and De Palma, and like you know Coppola and De Palma are like this sucks, boo! And Spielberg's like yeah, you got something, it's good, you know. And and imagine that like showing to your four friends, your four artistic friends, like this is what I'm working on, and then be like, Pfft. like you know, <laughs> like no, thank you.
1: Well, I mean, I will say that uh, George Lucas. Told Carrie Fisher that she wasn't allowed to wear a bra in the movie because there were there were no bras in space.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that I mean, be to me that looks a little bit uncomfortable running around in that kind of loose robe. Yeah.
0: Oh my gosh. I, I wouldn't mean, even like that. Yeah. No,
1: not at all. Also, you know, in De Palma famously when he saw that it was like, well, oh, blah, whatever. But he helped him rewrite the scroll. And oh, he really? made some really smart edits to The Scroll because the way that jo- that George Lucas wrote it was very long-winded, very like... You don't Albertian. say. <laughs> some of De Palma's edits were like, you know, he would say, it is a period of civil wars in the galaxy. And he'd be like, can you just cut in the galaxy? Right. We can see the stars. We're yeah. fine. Yeah. You know, can we just make this at all legible?
0: There's performances in this movie they're kind of all over the board. I mean, just, they just—they just are. Like, sometimes a, an actor will be very good in a scene, and other times, like, well, that's not wow. Okay, it's a little shaky, and the dialogue is sometimes really good, and it, there's some, and sometimes not so good. And, and sometimes Princess Leia is British. Listen
1: to
4: this. I was just gonna bring this up. <laughs> yes, okay, great. This is prim- we're
0: on the same page. I love this. We've entered the Alderaan system.
4: Governor talk. I should have expected to find you holding Vader's leash. I recognized your foul stench when I was brought on board.
2: Charming to the last. You
0: don't know how hard I found it, signing the order to terminate your life. I'm
4: surprised you had the courage to take the responsibility yourself.
0: I was watching this last night and going, my God, this sticks out like such a a sore thumb. It's so... Funny because it's in the middle of the movie. We already met her. She's already had some dialogue scenes. But do you know the reason for this? Why? Why she has a British accent? So Carrie Fisher said that she was so kind of enamored with uh, Peter Cushing mm-hmm. that she was like, "Oh, I'll be British too," <laughs> and starts <laughs> doing like a British. Like she's just sort of like around. Like, and I think you know sometimes when you are surrounded by British people, you you can kind of just like fall into that.
1: I do that all the time. It's really embarrassing.
0: Yeah, I know. I, me too. And so um, they just actually retconned it uh, for, uh, for the canon in uh, the book Bloodline. I'm not even looking at my notes, guys. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and basically what they did was they said that uh, Princess Leia was uh, making fun. Of Tarkin, like she's like, oh, and when I saw him and he blew up Alderaan, I I mocked his voice, like so they like kind of like they grounded <laughs> in, so that they, they've made it make sense now that like that was a like she was doing a harsh slam to him, like he
1: looks really upset yeah, about it. it. He Pissed blew off. up her planet. He's like, all right, then <laughs> you you make fun of me, <laughs> and I'll destroy you. I mean, I, I always feel like I'm not even sure if people know how to pronounce pronounce Leia in this movie. I get confused. I get
0: confused too. Well, look, the there's a reason. All right, so like Lucas was so confused about the characters and words he was creating. That that's why there is not a like a uniformed idea of how to spell Wookiee, because even he in the script changed it a few different times. <laughs> like like he's creating this thing and, and the characters changed around a lot as well. Like um, but uh like you know, I think he was yeah. just playing around with a lot of a lot of different stuff.
1: I mean, I heard he took the name Wookie from this extra who was like a friend of a friend of his on THX 1138. Yes. That the guy's name was Bill Wookie. And he just kind of wrote that down. He was like, I'm going to remember that. And then at one point while they were doing 1138, you know, Walter Murch, who was editing that film, he had all those cans that were labeled things. And he had these real cans and he had the dialogue cans. And he said, somebody give me R2-D2 and well, he just read that and I was like I'm going to keep that little guy. I, I mean he registers the title to do a movie called quote The Star Wars in 1971 6 years before this film comes out because it was his quiet passion project.
0: I love it but here hold on one second cuz I want to I want to maybe debunk two of the things that you just said. What? Well there's a couple of different interpretations of things. So let me tell you what I my research dug up. Okay. The Wookiee thing happened, at least from my research, when a San Francisco DJ named Terrence McGovern was recording VO on THX, and he made a blunder and exclaimed, ah, I think I ran over a Wookiee back there. And Lucas was confused and asked what that meant, and Terrence had no idea and admitted he just made it up, and he was like, ah. That's what I'll use. Wait,
1: no. These two things actually mesh. These okay. two things actually mesh. Because that guy, Terry, was friends with Bill Wookiee, and he was making a joke. He kind of came up with oh, his friend's name. Oh, okay. So you see? This is not retconning some shiny new one. All right.
0: Well, then then how about this one? All right. During the post-production of American Graffiti, the sound crew requested reel number two of the second dialogue track, which translated in sound talk to, could you get R2-D2 for me? And that's where it came up. Not... Uh, THX American Graffiti.
1: That's fair enough. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. And you know what? Perhaps I did say THX when I meant to say
0: American All Graffiti. All right, I'm maybe,
1: maybe. Say, perhaps I did. I just want to make threw sure. Me that... off and here I was. With
0: my <laughs> accent. Oh, it's the only way. don't tarkin' me. Um,
1: <laughs> but no, what I think is fascinating is how long Lucas worked on the script and how hard it was for him. Yes. Like people have been mocking a lot of his earlier drafts. I mean, he did draft after draft, each one was torn to the ground rebuilt back up again torn to the ground rebuilt back up again you know at one point he his main character was like a teenage girl was was yes. star killer he was making it at one point more like lord of the rings he was going all over the place he wanted to have a good female role in here because he had taken so much shit for american graffiti for right. like writing out all the women at the end so i appreciate that he was trying to mess around with that a little bit but it just feels like it was all over the place. And so much of it was ideas that he wanted to put in THX that didn't fit. You know, he had the idea of a force in the THX script. And he thought, you know, maybe I could take what I love about sci-fi and try to give it more heart. Because everybody said that was what was missing from his first film, especially Marsha, his wife.
0: Well, I think what he does here is adds a sense of fun to the films. And we know that, you know, Lucas can manipulate an audience emotions, right? Because that's what he does very well at the end of American Graffiti. Like, I think he he has such an analytic view of story, right? Uh, and so much so that I think only George Lucas could be the person to be so devotional to Joseph Campbell. I'm sure someone's going to debunk this immediately. Fine. But he knows how to create story. But this movie kind of puts a sense of real fun in it. And I think American Graffiti certainly is a fun movie but this one has a real like energy and a spark to it that feels light and uh and engaging in a way not to say that american graffiti isn't because it's a fine movie but it's there is some magic here that feels youthful and playful uh that i feel like it doesn't have like the heaviness even though we're talking about the empire and we're blowing up planets and killing you know millions of people um can i tell you what the that's
1: basically vietnam
0: we I mean, did, yeah. and yeah. he
1: thought of this so much as a Vietnam story. I mean, he was like, the evil empire is the U.S. military. The em- the emperor is Nixon. But later on, when he got into the franchise, he was like, the Ewoks or the Viet Cong. Like he had this wow. Vietnam parallel that he mapped onto it. Well,
0: I mean, if that's true, you know, he also said that Han Solo was based on Francis Ford Coppola. So is that like Han Solo getting in the middle of Vietnam to make his own movie, or you know, <laughs> kind of creating his own narrative throughout the whole thing?
1: I mean, by the way, hot.
0: the idea that Han Solo is Francis Ford Coppola, to me, really does not track well, at however, all. however,
1: however, yeah. however, uh, Francis Ford Coppola tried to steal Marsha Lucas at one point. Oh, really? So Han Solo, as a oh. Mr. Steal Your Girl, does track. I think it's kind of fun talking about Star Wars after we've done American Graffiti, because you can really see the way that Han Solo talks about his Millennium Falcon as being basically the same kind of car nut guy that yes. we have in American Graffiti. It's the same person.
0: Well, I think that what you're seeing with- Lucas is something that you see with Stephen King, a redo, a redo, a redo, until I get it to what I want it to be. Um, And even to this point, I'll say the opening sentence of the 13 page treatment that George Lucas wrote in 1972, which I do have uh, at home, yeah, in one of my boxes of fun things uh, oh, is- All
1: of my boxes of my things boxes, that I have that I treasure. I
0: love it all. <laughs> I, I based all my boxes. I guess I realized now as I'm saying it, like I saw a great documentary about Kubrick called like boxes and everything in his house wow. is in boxes. It's an amazing documentary.
1: Wow. Um, you know, I went to this place yesterday called the LA City Archives. It's uh-huh. where they just have every box of everything. Like if you signed your tax bill, they have it in a box Whoa. in a book. And it is like being at the end of the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like there's a room with just boxes as far as you can see. And it's just people signing their names to deeds.
0: Well, Amy, I'm going to tell you something. Because we're talking about boxes. We're talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. We're talking about George Lucas. I just got back from Skywalker Ranch. And I was very lucky to be brought into the archive of the George Lucas archive. I got to see the Raiders of the Lost Ark, Ark, both of them, the stunt one and the real one. Um, It is rumored that inside the arc is the Star Wars script. Um I did not ask him to take the top off, but I got to see every he didn't single say, prop. Take your
1: top off. Take
0: your top off. <laughs> I got to see every single prop from all the Star Wars films uh that Lucas was involved in. So the six. Um but it I'll I'll kind of circle back to that in a second because it was a really I mean for me it was it was a nerd nirvana Moment, and I want to thank Layla French, who uh, was the librarian there, who (laughs) brought me around and uh, and let me gawk awkwardly at everything there, at every lightsaber, every gun. Well,
1: and and I will say, I will say, I will say that as much as I am sort of a Star Wars eye roller, although there are a lot of things I like about this film, which we will talk about. I did get to visit the set of the Last Jedi in London. Yeah, and so Ryan let me run around one day. Whoa! And um, I got to like go inside the Millennium Falcon and just touch all the buttons and touch everything. I could pick up all the blazers. I was blazers. I could pick up all the blasters. I just got to touch stuff. It yeah. It felt
0: so fun. Well, that's the whole thing. I mean, we're talking about this thing of like, it's a tactile movie and it's like, I don't feel that way with the Avengers. I don't want to like, go touch. You can't touch shit with the Avengers. Well, like, like, what are you going to touch? A, a pixel? I mean, there are so many cool things that they have, Thor's hammer and stuff, but I don't like, there's not like a an instinct in me to touch Thor's hammer, but if you showed me Han Solo's <laughs> blaster, I'm like, yeah. Like, or, or Kylo Ren's lightsaber blade. Like, I just, there's something well, about it. It's like, I want to be in that ship. I didn't want to be in the ship, you know, in Avengers Endgame. I just, I like it. It's cool, but I don't want to be in it. I
1: mean, I think that in the back of our head, we know that there is no ship. Do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, that I mean. That there's sort of a ship, but there's not a ship the way that this was a ship.
0: Well, this really does a great job of of merging tactile i mean which i'm mean, going into yoda and things like that i mean even with the cantina the cantina is very practical Effect aliens yeah, it's so there's fun. just a
1: dude in a wolf mask they're just like well we need one more guy let's get yeah. the wolf mask out i mean here. by the way even some the of guy the people can move their eyes some of the people can't
0: i mean the guy who's like i don't like you and he doesn't like you is this guy who has like weird like almost like a half-assed makeup job around his eye like he's like kind of a pig man but not much i love it all I just want to hit this one thing because I, I want to get into it all with you. And we are getting into it. But um, we were talking about Lucas Reeve using things. So the opening line of his 13-page treatment that he wrote in 1972 is this. This is the story of Mace Windu, a revered Jedi Bendu of Opachi, who was related to Yusbe CJ Thape, a Padawan learner to the famed Jedi. So exactly what you're talking about with De Palma, like, hoof. Do I want to read more? No. no.
1: Apparently in the really <laughs> early scripts too, uh, Lucas was really into what people were eating. And so if you read the early scripts, they were like, well, they're sitting down and they're having what they, he called bum bum extract or later they're, they're eating stuff called bomba mash. Yeah. I mean, if you're that bad at making up names, I just don't think you should. But yet, that yet these
0: names. names that he came up with are iconic. I mean, you know, um, I guess uh, that, you know, the word <laughs> Ewok extract. is never even said in the film. You know that. And that's in return, obviously. Um, but, you know, I don't think that this movie gets made unless you talk about this major part of the vision of this film, and that's Ralph McQuarrie. Ralph McQuarrie, um basically was the conceptual artist who created paintings of these scenes to really push this script over the line, to make it uh, into reality. And his drawings are absolutely stunning. My friend uh, Dave Mandel who is uh you know ran uh Seinfeld in the last couple of years, uh, ran Veep in the last couple of years and and did uh, many things in between. Uh, actually did a collected work of Ralph McQuarrie's Star Wars art and he hunkered down at the archive there on uh, Skywalker Ranch. And if you get a chance to see it, the book is absolutely stunning. But like Ralph Macquarie's work is go- I mean beyond gorgeous and that that visualization, I mean, that's what J.J. Abrams is using. That's what I think everybody is using. Um, even when I talked to Layla at the archive, she was saying that, like, you know, Ryan Johnson was, like, really invested in this art and pulling things and finding things and really, you know, using the universe. Because when we talk about the Star Wars universe, that is it. I mean, that that's... That is really the outer shell of it, as this this art. I mean, that's all we kind of have. And so to kind of pull from that and and develop it more and more. I I just can't th- I, I think Ralph Macquarie isn't always said as so verbally a part of this franchise. But without him and his vision, I think that's that's the razor's edge of this movie walks. A bad, bad costumes, bad design sets this movie and makes it a complete failure.
1: No, I think you're exactly right. I think like it's, it feels to me when you hear stories about this film coming together that you have George almost as like a very ambitious, crazy person who cannot articulate what he's thinking, can't even really right. get it onto the page that easily. And yet people like McCoy were able to sort of listen and say, well, he, he seems to be describing a tiny Darth Vader. What if I draw a big one? Right. You know, what if I make C-3PO a woman? He tried out that thing. And he gave people something to look at that wasn't just George trying to explain what he was trying to do. That would just seemed like it was such a passion project, it couldn't come out cleanly.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's the benefit of, like, filmmaking is this: it's a collaborative effort. And if you trust people around you, you start to really incorporate how they see it. Because sometimes in your head... You need somebody to say no or yes. And I and I would argue to a certain extent, I know Carrie Fisher was brought into Script Doctor of the Prequels, but I don't think he I think he was maybe more confident in what he wanted to do. And all these things that we're talking about. Overwrought, specifics that are not necessarily important, are the are the kind of the 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 touchstones or of of the prequels, and the issues that i I think are kind of the things I don't like about the prequels. it It loses some of the fun playfulness. And yes, you get it in like things like jar jar, but you lose it in plotting because it becomes like, oh, what is like we you're don't sifting need to through oh
1: really? And I I mean, to me, the person that I always like to give a shout out to is the art director is Roger Christian. Oh, yeah, because I love the look of Star Wars so much when it comes to how dirty everything is the fingerprints on it, that everything feels touched and used. When C-3PO just gets so smudged and then later takes a bath. Yeah. Things like that. I love
0: him taking a bath.
1: I love him taking a bath. And I love this idea that they're like, you know, usually when you look at space films, the way that Roger Christian said is like, everything looks really unnatural. People are dressed like in these identical communist almost looking outfits. Yeah. Nobody looks like they live anywhere. Everything looks like it was just brand new. It's too plastic and it looks artificial. You're never able to buy it, which I think is... Part of the problem with the pixels of the Avengers, nothing ever looks real to me. So I don't really care. But
0: isn't it interesting that as an art director, well, I guess as maybe the costume designer too, um, you make a choice that the bad guys are in all white. And oddly, so are our good guys. Like for the most part, like, and I was thinking about this, like Princess Leia is in white, Luke is in white, more beige. and then even Han Solo is wearing a white shirt with black over it, which is kind of very representative of his character. He's white, but with a little bit of black, If I could just too. take
1: that black vest off, he'd be so <laughs> nice to
0: me. But I mean, but there is something really interesting about that, that you, like, for a movie that is so black and white, that yet, you know, Darth Vader is black. But the rest, you know, the stormtroopers are the major, you know, or the, the army that we keep on seeing, and they are white. And so are our main characters.
1: Yeah, and I think it really does have a just such a clean look to it, you know? Although what's kind of ironic is when you hear – Roger Cushion actually wrote a really interesting book about making this film because, like you were saying, nobody thought this film would be that big of a hit. They kept slashing the budget. He kept losing his budget even when the film was already underway. And his secret to everything was just like, get junk and put it there. Add more junk. And right. he called it, actually, his nickname for it was Greblies. When stuff didn't look real, he was like, get more Greeblies, Just glue more things onto the Millennium Falcon's dashboard. Glue more things onto R2-D2. The more you put on it and the dirtier it looks, the more real it looks.
0: Oh, interesting. And I love
1: that. I love that he was sort of heaping joke around and looking for things that well, were- Well, they were taking
0: apart model sets and, you know, those, like, little things. It was, like, these intangibles. Airplanes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He was looking to a film we haven't even gotten to yet, uh, uh, Casablanca. He was looking at Rick's Cafe for how he wanted that cafe to feel. Yeah. The kind of dirtiness of it. And that he was so invested in working around the clock trying to get this made that he was actually sleeping in the caves, in the in Uncle Owen's caves oh, at night. wow. Eating couscous, just living in there and trying to make them look lived in
0: interesting that's so yeah. fascinating but to me, it really and works. by the way those like, are still standing i think if you go to tunisia you can see the remnants of these because they just like there's such a fun thing about filmmaking at that time where it's like that ah, we're done we're out like they just like leave it like just, <laughs> like leave it in tunisia see you later and you know it's like now you'd have to be required to like break it down although i did a movie one time with harold ramus where we um it was like a biblical movie called Year One. Oh, I've seen Year One. Uh, year One, and uh, and at the end of that, they're like, well, "I was like, what's happening to the city? It's a beautiful city?" And they're like, "Oh, we're it's going to become a paintball course. We're just leaving it, and they're going to make it a paintball course." Well, like, that's so fun. I mean, it is kind of fun, but the idea of like, "Well, ah, we built this thing that cost a lot of money, and now we're just we're out."
1: We built this city. Now boop, it's a paintball boop. course. <laughs> I mean, I'm really happy that we're doing Star Wars this late in the show mm-hmm. because I think. You, when this movie starts, for example, I'm just watching it and I'm like, "Oh, Lawrence of Arabia, you're everywhere." Yes, right? oh yeah. You see the Lawrence of Arabia now that we've done Lawrence, and we're coming back to this. Those big, beautiful desert vistas. You see the Searchers, I think, a lot in like the canyons. You're seeing a lot of the John Forts. So you're seeing everything that Lucas is distilling.
0: By the way, you're seeing Wizard of Oz in this movie too. I mean, it's it's you know. And look, that's why I think he wanted uh, Luke to be a woman at a certain point. Like, you could see that parallel. Like, here's a person who, you know, gets different people. They go on an adventure. They defeat the evil wizard. And and then they bring peace to their planet, you know?
1: That's true. And, and I think you also are still continuing to see even American Graffiti. Like, what I was really thinking about this watch is how much my favorite scene in Star Wars has to do with American Graffiti.
0: Oh, let's hear it.
4: Luke's just not a farmer only. He has too much of his father in him.
0: That's what I'm afraid of.
1: of course, the two sun scene where Luke goes outside, he stares off and he just wants to explore. And to me, that longing is so much a part of American Graffiti. Like, how do I yeah. get out of Modesto? I mean, it's how the same idea. Town? It is. You see it also in Wizard of Oz. Uh, how do I get out of here? Like, how do I get out of Kansas? And I think it is such a universal feeling. Like, well, I connect to Luke because of that. I remember feeling that way. Like, how do I get out of Texas?
0: Well, I think that, like, what Lucas does, and he actually shot more of it, like that's a very artistic way to show that, that longing. I mean, through music and nonverbal cues. But this is how it was written. Did you ever see the Biggs Darklighter scene? So Biggs is his buddy, this is a deleted scene,
4: uh, and you'll see why, for good reason. What good's all your uncle's work if the empire takes it over? You know they've already started to nationalize commerce in the central systems? It won't be long before your uncle's just a tenant. Slaving for the greater glory of the Empire. No, that's not gonna happen here. You said yourself the Empire won't even mess with this old rock. Things can change.
2: I wish I was going. Are you gonna be around long? No. Leaving in the morning. Hmm. I guess I won't see you.
1: Maybe someday? I'll keep a lookout.
2: Yeah. I'll be at the Academy next season, and then who knows? I won't be drafted into the Imperial Starfleet, that's for sure. (sighs) Well, take it easy, buddy you always be the best friend I've ever had.
0: So long, Luke.
1: I just, did, he, did he spank him on the ass? <laughs> I
0: think he's giving him a, a playful, a playful pat. Look, like he's you know, but I mean, like, it's like that idea of like, oh, I want to go and I and I can't, like, you know, it's like you don't need, you didn't need another moment of him going. Oh, but I, if I just stay another season, like, you get, you get all of that in that little scene in the homestead without. This, like, you know, and if you watch that scene, he's very, very much, like, throwing rocks and looking off camera and being very...
1: He's very, uh, very James Dean.
0: Yeah, like, oh, I wish I could leave, but I can't, you know? And it's like, but uh, it's an, it's a way of, like, you know, like, again, this movie not overstepping it, being more artistic, uh, you know? And I, I, like, I like that. I think these are the instincts. And you'll also see there, we're getting into politics and everything like that. You know, these are, again, are people holding back, are people filtering lucas the best way i mean i think a lot of people think empire is like the best star wars film you don't you think return of the jedi is Is that you see the face <laughs> you think return of the jedi is the best one
1: this is definitely the best one but no, no 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 i mean i think what i what i do appreciate about that scene is the idea of the people getting drafted to fight for the imperial army i right. think that's really interesting to know to know that it's not yes. just all good people and all bad people that some of the people who are fighting don't want to be fighting
0: you know, I want to go into the performances here as well. Like I said before, like, you know, this is a movie that has interesting performances. I will say that unequivocally, when you see uh, Harrison Ford on screen, he is electric. He is dynamic. He has a self-assuredness for the young actors in this movie that is just leaps and bounds better than anybody else around him. I mean, he just is... You're like, boom, movie star, got it, ready to go. And he didn't have that in American Graffiti. He was cool, but this is like, shh, like it's on another level.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think when I first watched this, whenever I first watched this, I never really identified the age gap between Luke and Harrison because they just seemed like the same age to me. All older people were the same age to me. But you do feel it more now and you see the way that he shoots Luke to look smaller and the Harrison's kind of larger and taking over the frame.
0: But it's funny when I watch it with my 5-year-old not that my 5-year-old is the ultimate thing but I can also go back to myself the person that my 5-year-old identified with was Luke. He's like yeah. I want to be Luke. I want it to be Luke. The two characters his two favorite characters are Luke and Chewbacca. Like, you know. And-
1: oh, I have to say I like Winnie Luke. I really enjoy the fact that he is kind of aggravating because I I think if he was too perfect he would be annoying I don't like a perfect hero
0: no and I think
1: him being like I don't know if I want to go with you I'm scared and I get your uncle talking okay well if you like
0: whiny characters enjoy the prequels Amy (laughs) get ready get ready for some real whines but I
1: appreciate that and I feel like I know that part of what Last Jedi gets grief for is this idea of like doing Luke dirty or something, but it's the same Luke. I feel like that is true to Luke.
0: I will. The only argument that I will go to the mat for is that Luke's arc is perfectly, perfectly executed, and I think the Last Jedi does an amazing job of of finishing it up. I, I like. I, I think the attention to that character is great um but i was going to say as far as casting is concerned in this what i think is really interesting is yes you have this younger actress this kind of unknown actor you have this guy harrison ford has been around but not a pop yet and then you drop in alec guinness yeah now, and peter to, cushing and peter cushing yeah. now to me alec guinness i don't know alec guinness my my first and and honestly as i continue to grow older i'm like oh alec guinness was giant movie star. Like, I didn't understand that. Like, I thought Alec Guinness was some old guy. Uh, but anyway, Alec Guinness, such a great, like, anchor in this movie. I feel like he just grounds everything. And I feel like, again, another person who brings a gravitas to the film and, and makes it better than it was. And this is him talking about how he got involved.
2: And then when I opened it and found it was science fiction, I thought, oh, crumbs, And you know, I this is simply not for me. Uh, <laughs> and... Then I started reading, and it seemed to me the dialogue was pretty ropey. Uh, <laughs> but I had to go on turning the page. And the, I mean, that's an essential yes. in any script. You know, you've got to know what happens next or, uh, or what's going to be said next. And I, I went on reading, and I thought, no, I'm, I, I, I like this. Uh, if only we can get some of the dialogue altered. And then I met him. We got on very well, and I found myself doing it, that's all. And it's made more money than any other movie ever made. So I'm told, And yes. you've got yourself part of the action. Ah, uh, well... Two that's... and a half percent, isn't it? No, 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 not quite that, no. What is it? Sir, <laughs> 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 Sur- uh, Alay, how Ah, uh, 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 Well, uh, you want that story. Please. I tried to keep this dark. I don't know where this all sprang from. <laughs> um, I think it was the evening standard to blame for this. Um, I had a contract... I, my agent said I've asked for two percent of whatever because we didn't think it would make any you know I've never had a, I've had a percentage on a film before and they lose money like mad if I have a percentage <laughs> and I said oh fine all right two percent uh, and the day before the film opened in San Francisco uh, George Lucas phoned me and said um, he's very, very again he's like Adam Bennett, he's very diffident and very shy and quiet and he has a funny little voice, and he said, um, I think the movie's kind of gonna be all right. I said, oh, I'm glad, George. He said, yeah, I, th- I the press quite like it. I said, good. He said, we're pleased with, um, you know, very grateful for the little alterations you suggested, and so we'd like to offer you another half percent um, by making it two and a half. I said, oh, that's, you know, that's marvelous, thank you very much. But a matter of a few weeks later, in fact, the day I saw the film, i have just seen it once, um, the producer, who again is a charming, delightful chap, I said, about this little extra something you were kindly offering, I wonder if we could have something in writing just so that, you know, my agent and so on believes this. And he said, oh, the, about the quarter
0: percent, yes. <laughs> I just thought that was – I'm sorry it was a long clip, but it's such a great – it also encapsulates so much about this movie and George Lucas and everything. But I just love how – I never knew that he got, like, a percentage, but that – I just love that. I
1: I, love that. And I heard he – I think he wrote about this in one of his memoirs that, um, like – you, he, I think he felt a little conflicted about this. So I think he loved the money about it. But you yeah. hear him say there that he only watched it once.
0: Oh, yeah. And he calls the dialogue ropey. I yeah. mean, he makes fun of Lucas. Like, there's no difference to like, no. oh, yeah.
1: No, and I mean, I think it's – I'm glad he got to make fun of it while he was alive because when he dies, they start they run pictures of Obi-Wan instead of his picture and stuff in his obituary, which Ugh. would make me furious if I was yeah. him and around to see it.
0: Especially knowing his body of work. And I think yeah. for me as someone who grew up in the, you know, the 80s, like I only knew, you know, like because of that. Like, yeah. Yeah.
1: But he does tell this story in his memoir That once a young kid ran up to him and like asked for an autograph and said, I've seen Star Wars a hundred times. And Alec Guinness said, do you think you could promise to never watch it again? And the kid (laughs) burst into tears. (laughs) I I want to play actually one of my favorite scenes because I think it is to me a good example of how Star Wars creates the idea of magic and special effects without even showing anything. Mm. And that's where you see Obi-Wan use the force to get away from the stormtrooper who's trying to like investigate their droids.
0: How long have you had these droids? About three or four seasons.
2: They're up for sale if you want them.
4: Let me see your identification.
2: You don't need to see his identification.
4: Mm -hmm. We don't need to see his identification.
2: These aren't the droids you're looking for.
4: These aren't the droids we're looking for.
2: He can go about his business.
4: You can go about your business.
2: Move
0: along.
1: Move along. He just does the tiniest finger wave. I know.
0: And it's all through dialogue. Well look, I think there's a lot of like things that are we talk about Lucas being obsessed with a lot of things. It, it feels like we're talking about, you know, putting junk in the scenes and, and, and this movie feels like a collection of things that you know, junk mind junk that Lucas had in his head. You know, uh, like even the idea of like what a Jedi is. You know, it's derived from the Japanese word uh, Jedi Geki, or uh, which is you know a period adventure drama, uh, essentially a Japanese TV soap opera in the samurai days. Like you know, so it's like, oh, I want to do like that's what I'm, he's pulling from all of his influences, and I think it's all. It's it's all right there. It's kind of exciting to see that, you know?
1: Yeah, which would make sense. And also, you know, he took from Kurosawa the kind of shambling buddy dynamic that he put into C-3PO and yeah. into R2-D2. And then I was going back and I was looking at Flash Gordon clips to kind of see, like, where the Flash Gordon was mm-hmm. that was in this film. And I, here's one that's very obvious.
2: the lethal ray emanating from the single eye of Belfagor. In a cell nearby, Flash and the traitor Chivas, an Earth scientist who sold out to the people of Ebon,
0: are trapped between two slowly moving walls that threaten to crush them at any moment. Does this invalidate your argument, Amy, that, you know, you said, like, I wish that, you know, our directors wouldn't have to be remaking this, but essentially Lucas is remaking that.
1: Well, he's remaking the setup, but at least the characters are new. Like, because to me, what I find really frustrating about where the Star Wars franchise has gone overall yeah, is... Is the idea that you could go anywhere on the planet, you can do anything, you could explore anything, and they keep making a Death Star and they keep blowing it up. And I'm like, for Christ's sake. But
0: the minute that you break the format, which is what Last Jedi does, people go, "Wow, what? Nate, wait a second. Who
1: cares about them?
0: I know, of course. But I mean, but that's the funny thing is like this push-pull of wanting this difference but wanting familiarity. It's like this weird thing that we live with, you know, of, of constantly like, what do people want? And I think Marvel does – Walk that line of giving you what you want to see, but then surprising you at the same time. Like, you're going to get, you're going to get, it's like the same quality food, but it's going to be, you know, maybe different presentations, if that makes sense. Did you hear that Bob Iger wanted to get James Bond? He's like, I'd buy that franchise.
1: Oh, great. James Bond will walk around, not have sex with anybody and like i don't know cuddle a fucking dog at night and go to bed
0: well I look mean, you know star wars if maybe george lucas had his way would have been a lot more dirty did you know that like uh that r2d2 was like a cursing robot that spoke english that like, that was like a that was like in the first couple of drafts he was just like <laughs> that's what i think like what's left over is C-3PO constantly reacting to this foul-mouthed droid, uh, which I really think is a funny – I mean, it's so much better not to hear the curses, but I do love that. I imagine if Star Wars had, like, a lot of F-bombs in it.
1: I mean, I appreciate that. I mean, my favorite character in the whole series is C-3PO. Oh, really? I feel like he gets put upon a lot. I mean, granted, in this movie, he is more of like an appeasement character. He's like, right. we belong to our masters. We want to do what makes them happy. He's very apologetic. He doesn't really try to take stands. And I think if you listen to some of C-3PO's advice, this would be a much more different, boring, sad, tragic movie with, the, with the bad <laughs> Yeah, Amy.
0: you don't want to listen to the robot, Amy. However. You identify with the robot? I do. There's Who something. has no emotions? No, he has a lot of emotion. His emotion is not to be the like his fear. That's his that's his number he one motivator. He tries hard
1: to be friendly. Um, he tries to be useful to people. I think I out I of sense fear, his, his anxiety. I think I really identify with his mixture of anxiety and also that he doesn't really care about any of this. Feels very much like me. It's like minute fifteen of the movie where he's like, "Can we be done now?" And that's how I feel about Star Wars ultimately. But that said, I I you must I like be a his-
0: blast to go on a road trip with. <laughs> Yeah, you actually are. That's the thing I'm kind of can't figure <laughs> out. Like what? Like yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, I love this monologue right here from C three PO. How did we get
2: into this mess? I really don't know. About we seem to be made to suffer. It's our lot in life.
1: I mean, I love that about him. And like, <laughs> honestly, part of why I dislike Empire. Is uh because that film is very mean to C three PO like he becomes this punching bag. Well, I feel like C three PO in that movie he's actually right most of the time, and nobody listens to him, and he gets torn apart. Here he gets torn apart, and they half forget. They're like, oh yeah, I mean, because he's a robot. No, he's no he cares. He's not just you're like you're like Joaquin Phoenix and and her. And we're like, why are you treating him like You would be sad if R two D two like broke a nail,
0: but because R two D two is a foul mouth kind of robot, like fuck it. I don't
1: even know if he's saying that. You just wish. I mean, to be fair, they can ignore C three PO, but then they just treat him like a dummy, and he's correct. I'm like, just the, at least he's, uh, he's a robot. Well, that's you're so the one who's like, species-ish. don't let
0: <laughs> Jesus Christ. He's not sentient.
1: Yes, he's sentient. You don't think he's sentient? How do you have that much anxiety? He's if not, you're not data. Sentient?
0: Like he is, he's is, he is below data on the robot scale. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And data's not even a human.
1: Wow, I don't believe that. Yeah, at all. data's no. trying.
0: No. See the not even trying to do I be believe a
1: human. that you believe that. When did he the laugh? Movie is so when has he him. laughed? When does he have a reason to? Nobody's funny.
0: There's a lot of funny <laughs> shit going on. He could be
4: not laughing.
1: It will be like They're kicking sand in his face. Why aren't you laughing? The jokes are on his expense. What's he supposed to laugh
4: at? Oh, you Uh, got your
1: arm torn off. Ha ha. You want him to laugh then?
0: You know, it was originally supposed to be like a a car salesman, C-3PO. Like Stan Stan Freeberg was who George Lucas had in mind for him, but he just kind of fell in love with Anthony Daniels like – idea of the character and just kinda of jettison that thing. So imagine like, hey yeah, what he got there, kid oh yeah, we'll go over here, we'll go there. Like that like that would have been real uh, trash. I mean I
1: love I love his earnestness. Honestly, like I, I have a lot of heart for C three PO, and it does. It is sad that like Anthony was in pain making this. Like apparently, the C three PO feet kept falling off. He was always just miserable and hot. I mean, look, and anybody in a costume
0: you can basically say is miserable. Like uh, I mean, there's nobody who's like, oh yeah, I was in a costume for that entire movie. It was a great experience. Nope, no, <laughs> terrible, terrible, <laughs> terrible. Like I mean, David Prowse seems to who plays the body of Darth Vader seems to at least not bitch about it that much but he i mean he does a little bit i do have a clip of him talking about how hard it was to be in that costume
4: too you, you have terrible vision problems number one they 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 put darkened lenses in um and of course because of the shape of the mask you, you really can't see anything further than about sort of 10 feet in front of you on the floor so your vision really starts at about 10 feet away so you can't see steps and things in front of you um my my vision most of my vision downwards it can, comes out of this breathing hole just there which is like a like a goals, uh, affair. And then on, when we were doing the big fight sequence at the end, where we had to have more vision, we actually made another mask with a, with a perspex bottom, so that you could actually see better, you know, down below. But we the only heat just is fairly really intense, presumably. the The heat is absolutely fantastic, because not only, um, you see, when they made the mask, first of all, they made the mask miles too big. And then when George asked me to turn right and left, I sort of turned right and left, and the mask still stayed facing forward. So they padded the whole of the inside of the mask out with foam rubber. And of course, that made it made you perspire even more. And and, and the least, least bit of exertion, uh, the eyepieces missed up, and you have to stop everything and clean out the eyepieces and see where you're going. I said in the in the big fight sequence at the end, you, know, you you'd walk through the set and then have to be led back by by three people. Sounds
0: absolutely hard. That's him talking about his experience on Empire. But I mean, yeah, wow, that sucks. <laughs>
1: Well, I think R2-D2, you know, poor, poor, poor Kenny Baker who played that character. He might have had it maybe even the worst because he couldn't hear a thing when he was in Do you know how he got cast, actually? How? They were looking for somebody who could fit inside the very tiny R2-D2 as drawn by McQuarrie. And they were watching TV and they saw this act called the Minitones.
3: Now, here are two great characters who've done the whole
2: gamut in show business. TV, stage, cabaret, films, they've reached the heights. And yet they haven't. You'll see what I mean. When you meet the Minitones. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you,
4: Thank you very much. Thank, you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Ken. All right. What are you doing? I'm making friends here. You're always making friends. Oh, well, we're not big enough to make enemies. <laughs> we go to Ireland. We've got a lot of friends over there. Oh, we have. We make a fortune. Yes. Yeah. They think we're leprechauns. <laughs> They love him. Oh, yeah, well, I'd like to make a good impression. And he does lots of those. What? What's that? Good impressions. Oh. Got into that world, didn't we? Yeah. Oh, he does them all.
1: Head waiter in the little chef. Yeah. But <laughs> anyways, they saw Kenny Baker and they were like, not only is he the perfect size who can fit in there, right. he was three foot eight, but he does have a personality like a sense of humor that right. they thought could kind of translate even within, within <laughs> the confines of being R2-D2.
0: I mean, yeah, sure, I guess so. I mean, I will say that if he can hear and he can't use his body, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's, it's like it's a, it's like a lofty thing. It's like when J.J. Abrams brought in like uh, Bill Hader and Ben Schwartz to be the voice of BB-8. It's like, okay, but BB-8 sounds nothing like that. But uh, sure, I guess the instinct behind it is to find life in these things, and maybe if you are inspired like a sound designer is, I would argue that most of R2-D2's connection to people is his sounds, like are the things that he's not bringing to it at all. Um, But I love Kenny Baker and I met Kenny Baker. (laughs) And when I met him, he was drinking a yogurt and I will always remember him just, chugging the yogurt and and chatting
3: wow
1: that's very visceral all
0: right well let's talk about something you don't want to laugh at at <laughs> all which is darth vader who arguably look how can you again talking about this movie being a classic and everything like this this is one of the classic villains i don't have where he lists on the afi list of classic villains i'm sure it's like one uh you know <laughs> next to like hannibal lecter but this is like this is a villain that is so iconic played by two different actors um uh, James Earl Jones, who doesn't even take credit because he uh, he didn't take credit on uh, New Hope or uh, Empire because he felt his contribution wasn't significant to warrant a credit. And then I think at the end, he was like, fuck that. I'll get the credit. But he is amazing. and What great... Casting, I mean, I think that that probably does more for James Earl Jones's career in the long term. Uh, You know, because it's uh, you know he becomes this like powerful voice, and it's one of these voices that even though he's so associated with Darth Vader, the most evil character in our cinematic universe, he could still be the voice of CNN. He could still be the voice of uh, you know Simba's dad. You know, it's like that voice is not holding him back, where a lot of the times like when you play a character that is evil, you're like, oh, like Tony Perkins is like, I could never really work again. But there's something about that voice, it's so iconic. And whenever you hear it, you immediately stand up in attention. But yet it he's used it all over the place, you know, uh, and, and besides the fact that he's just a uh, a, great, uh, a great actor to boot. But that voice is amazing, the voice and the look. You wouldn't expect that voice out of that character, I don't think.
1: It sounds educated, you know. It sounds like he is smarter than you, and that's always the kind of villain I like. Almost, actually, like Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, where they sound so smart that that makes me scary because I can't be confident that I can outsmart him. And I really do enjoy him um, in that scene where he's kind of taking down his bureaucrats. His like frustration with them because they don't believe what he believes.
2: Yeah, no matter what technical data they've obtained, this station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. Don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. The ability to destroy a planet is insignificant next to the power of the Force. Don't try to frighten us with your sorcerer's ways, Lord Vader. Your sad devotion to that ancient religion has not helped you conjure up the stolen data tapes or given you clairvoyance enough to find the Rebels' hidden fort.
4: I find your lack of faith disturbing.
0: You know what I kind of am realizing in, in watching that? What they do is they create a villain who is inherently weak. That respirator sound, it's like the voice is strong, the appearance is strong, the costume, you know, it's like, or the way he carries himself is strong and the, and the costume is strong, but the, but that respirator makes him feel weak. And it's it's a really interesting choice because he's not... All powerful, uh, and he's also getting yelled at by other people. Like, there's something really interesting about this character. He is a lot, there's a lot more shades of him than I think you're normally used to seeing in big bads, right? Big bads are always like, yeah, they're
1: he's just not bad. like, I want to kill all the puppies, yeah, yeah. He, his pride is injured in that scene, you know, yes. they insult what he holds, they insult his religion, yeah, you know, basically, uh,
0: absolutely. And
1: I appreciate that he silently then kills that man. The sound of his strangulation, by the way, I think is walnuts inside of a grapefruit. That's meal.
0: actually Antilles uh, in Ooh. the opening scene. Yeah. Which is amazing. It's uh, it's the same sound that they actually use when Han Solo is freed from carbonite too. That little, uh, but you know, can I tell you something fun? So I was up at Skywalker Ranch working on- Oh, were you up
1: at Skywalker Ranch?
0: Cy- yeah, Skywalker Ranch. I bought did my- Did I tell you
1: again that I was on the Millennium Falcon? I, know,
0: I it. know it. I wish I, I could there have- I was there have when they visited. did that
1: desert planet fight with the red, yeah. Oh, on
0: that whoa, part. that would have been amazing. Yeah. The what salt planet?
1: Yeah, one of the extras looked exactly like Jimmy Cagney, and I kept telling Ryan, "Like that guy looks
4: like Jimmy Cagney."
1: And I just, I don't know. Did they ever get a
0: close up of him? No. Um, but That's when I was much,
1: nobody listens to eh, me.
0: You are Princess Leia. <laughs> um, one of the things that was so interesting about being there, because it's a it, it's for sound, sound design, sound mixing, yeah. is these Star Wars sound effects are under lock and key. No one can use them, and even the sound editors when they want to use one of these things, have to request it, get access to it. It's not like there's just not a, you think, oh, I work at Skywalker Ranch, I have access to all the sound files. No, they are specifically locked away for the characters. Now, I'm working right now on a thing for Disney Plus about Marvel, and I couldn't even access, I was talking about Star Wars on our doc. I couldn't access anything from that Star Wars library, even though, it's for Disney plus it's for Marvel. They own every, the same owner. They are so protective. And I think that that protective nature of these sounds and sound effects make the movie even really special too. Like you will only hear, and this is a, a Jason, you will only hear Indy's whip when Indy is using his whip. And I think that that's a really smart thing. Like you're not hearing this respirator. You're not hearing the Wookiee growl unless it's Chewbacca, unless it's in the film. And, and it's like I think it's intellectual sound property and this movie really does these sounds are just as iconic as the you know, as the characters in the set design. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Well yeah, I mean I heard that some of the stuff they did is like to get the sound of the Imperial walkers. They dropped chains on concrete. Yeah. You know, to get the sound of like the land speeder, they went to the one ten freeway here in LA and they recorded the sound of the cars going by through a pipe. You know they like mess with air conditioner sounds. They mess with walrus sounds. They mess with whistles and pipes and elephants. I mean and Ben Bird is a hammers. genius. They did so much cool shit. And then, in their homage to something that we talked about all the way back in the day with Raiders of the Lost Ark, when one stormtrooper gets shot.
0: Got it. You hear it. The Wilhelm scream. The Wilhelm scream. Uh, it's so cool. I mean, and I and I really again feel like these are all people working at the top of their game. Yeah. Ben Bert, you got to call him out. Who I guess still hangs out up at Skywalker Ranch uh, and just like wants to like. Still see what's going on. But the lightsaber sounds were a combination of the hum of an idling 35-millimeter movie projector and the feedback generated by passing a striped microphone by a television.
1: Whoa. And I will say, when we were listening to that clip of Vader strangling the man, what really struck me, and I did not hear this when I was watching it on VHS tape, uh, was like the thrum of the room. What a great setting that is. It's fantastic. Have you ever heard, however, Darth Vader voiced in Navajo?
0: Well, I heard that this is the first movie that was actually uh, translated into Navajo. It
1: is. Let's listen.
0: Okay.
2: Dark Vader. <smays> the imperial senate but he
1: the imperial <simplement> senate <listed> <noises>
0: I love that. I mean, but again, we're talking about like this junkyard of Lucas's mind, and this is, you know. <laughs> the junkyard of
1: Lucas's mind. No, I think it's in like. In the junkyard <laughs> of Lucas's mind.
0: <laughs> That's my concept album. Uh, but, you know, you have this, you know, like, I love this idea that, you know, he was inspired by Joseph Campbell, who was inspired by the Navajo religion, and now it kind of feedbacks. You know, so he's like, well, I wanted to go into NAVO because this is who will appreciate this more than anyone. You know, it's like, um, I just think that
1: is really beautiful.
0: It's really, I mean, there's so many things. And, you know, I think George Lucas gets to be idolized and probably doesn't need to be idolized. He's a filmmaker who made a really good film about things that he's interested in. And I think George Lucas, at the end of the day, based on this is my gut, is more of a technical guy. Like, I think he likes to trying new things. I think one of the things I love about the prequels is that like, he boldly made choices in the prequels. Like I'm going to change the ships. I'm going to do this. Like he could have just done what people wanted him to do. And I think what he's consistently doing, whether it's from THX to American graffiti to this, to then stopping working and just working on like the technical side of film is following his passion of like creation and, uh, and, and, and kind of improving film. And yes, I hate the CGI and that doesn't look that great in the prequels, but through him, we get to a place where we can do things that you could never have done. I think he leads the way for things like avatar and opens the world to what we're seeing now in the Mandalorian, which is like this, these screens that are, the CGI is actually practical now. It's like, he's a, you know, he is this amazing mind of film and I think at certain points it creates something great, and at other points it doesn't create great stuff, or it does. It creates a uneven process. I don't think he has a a real care about actors. Case in point, most of the people said that like Lucas on set only gave them two notes, which was faster and more intense. And you know, one of the apparently he lost his voice in the middle of shooting, and they just gave him uh, a board with just those two phrases on it, so he could just point at which one he wanted.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I read this story about Lucas as a kid where when he was little, he built a haunted house. And you know, Lucas was a pretty rich kid.
0: Oh, I did not know that.
1: Yeah. I mean, his dad owned a stationary shop that was sort of a, yeah, yeah. it's a stationary shop, but it sold a lot of toys and they were very upper middle class. I mean, the allowance that George Lucas was given when he was a kid, I think he was given like $4 a week, which translated to like basically a hundred dollars. When he was Holy a little shit. kid. And he would buy a lot of toys and comic yeah. books. And he once, at one point, built this haunted house with a friend of his. Uh-huh. So he built this whole haunted house. He charged the neighborhood kids a mission to come by. And then once all the kids had come by once, he just re- rejiggered it a little bit and then charged them all to come by again. And said I it mean, was totally different. And he was just set in that mold from very early age. mean, a, a
0: businessman. I mean, he really is.
1: He is. And I mean, even when he goes to college and he meets all the art house kids, he joins a film club. And it is called the clean cut cinema club and they were this like clean cut cinema club and they they existed to combat what he felt like was the beatnik people who he thought were dominating the cinema, cinema department at USC. And like, he's like, all these people want movies to be like Jean-Luc Godard. Ah, what if we made it more like Flash Gordon?
0: I mean, and I think that shows in his work. I mean, you know, he's, you know, is he wrong? I don't know. I don't know because he makes something that is so iconic that relates to so many people. And, I think that that's an interesting thing when you can do that, when you can really do that. That's not me. I don't do that. I've not been able to do that thing that, like, that's what everybody wants to see. But I think that if you have that ability, why not? Why not be part of the clean cut cinema (laughs) club?
1: I mean, it was cute. Like, I found bits of this documentary that existed from 1977. And I want to play some of the stuff that was happening in 1977. One of them is this film that was just like put onto TV to be like, oh my gosh, this film is massive. And in it, he gets asked, like, are there going to be sequels to Star Wars? And this is him talking about it and also Mark Hamill first.
0: But then again, uh, George can do anything he wants now. Uh, this, the
1: first one has been so successful that he could set the next one in
2: Redondo Beach if he chooses <laughs> to do so. There are questions that still need to be answered. Like what about the future of the princess?
3: and who she is going to end up with is still anybody's guess. Uh, I will say that uh, uh, Luke is more devoted to her, I think, than Han Solo is.
4: I would probably describe Han Solo as the cynical mercenary space pirate with the cream filling, you know. He's a nice guy.
0: She's really a chump if she goes for Han Solo. (laughs) Wow. I mean, but this is like, you know, and I think that that's great. Like, I mean, you know... We everyone gets so mad, you know, at loss. Like they didn't have a plan. They didn't have a plan and 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 then you look at like breaking bad where it's like They very openly were like, we don't have a plan, and it turns out great. Who knows what the right way of this is? Like, I don't begrudge Lucas not having figured this all out before it started, because you probably wouldn't have cast James Earl Jones if you knew that Luke's dad was Darth Vader, and you would have played scenes differently if you knew that they were brother and sister. I think there would have been more, I think, part of the fun exploration of it, and sort of the the choices that were made were made because they didn't know and and it all worked out. I mean, th- nothing feels bad about it, you know.
1: No, but it does feel like something in him becomes a little bit Charles Foster Kane. Yeah. In a way that I find fascinating. And you hear, it's hard for me to know to really realize how big this was in 77 cuz it seems so big in my entire life that when I hear about how big it was in 77, it just that, that it was almost even bigger. It kind of it's yeah. hard for me to wrap my head around. But apparently in 77, a dude shows up at Lucasfilm with a knife. Wow. And he says, I need to see George Lucas. I wrote Star Wars. My Millennium Falcon is parked outside. And the police have to come, they have to take away this crazy man with a knife. And that Lucas, who is not a limelight kind of guy, he's yeah. not a Coppola kind of guy, that that's one of the things that triggered him sort of becoming more of a reclusive figure.
4: Yeah. And so
1: it's fascinating to see how the fame of this hurt a lot of people. You know, it hurt Hamill. He lost a lot of roles in movies because people didn't want Luke Skywalker in their films. They thought it was that he would be toxic about it, you know, and I mean, there are some people who do finally get their due, and I appreciate that. Like, this is also from that documentary.
2: Thousands are gathered to see the metallic megastars place their footprints and cement in the theater's courtyard. As the two heroes of Star Wars make their indelible impressions on the ground reserved for land's legends, the world resounds with the fact that Star Wars itself has become a full-fledged social phenomenon.
0: It has become more than just a movie. Those poor actors in that costume, uh, as they lift up C three PO and R two D two and put their fingers or their uh, feet in concrete. (laughs) But you know, you're talking about celebrity. I actually found a really good clip of Harrison Ford talking about what happened to him when the movie was released, and I think this is actually a pretty honest, candid response. I saw the film with an audience
3: for the first time about three days ago. Sat next to two people who had just were sitting through the film for the second time. And they engaged me in a conversation about the film, telling me how much they enjoyed it and what it was all about. And I asked them a few questions about specifics of why they enjoyed it so much. After the film was over, they, uh, they asked me why I had left during the middle of it if I didn't like the movie. And uh, <laughs> they didn't recognize me at all. No, really? no. I've never, I've never been recognized. In fact, in my early career I considered that to be sort of a problem that that characters that I played in different movies, it was not acknowledged that, that it was the same person doing the
0: doing the job. And I think it's interesting like listening to him talk about that, like he kind of weirdly escapes that moniker like that like that star wars thing like there's something about him and i don't know like it, look that's a you know it's a funny story like that people are literally watching the movie talking to one of the most you know one of the three faces there are four faces in this film three male faces essentially like uh like they don't recognize him and, and i was thinking about like his career, it's like he avoided that curse. No one else in this movie did. I mean, we can't really put Alec Guinness or Peter Cushing in it because they're kind of established in a different way. But he's the only one that goes on. I mean, Carrie Fisher has an interesting career, but he like sidesteps it.
1: I think the only way he's able to sidestep it is by equaling it, is by right. doing Indiana Jones. Because then when you're that famous for two things, it's right. almost like you're less famous
0: for each one. But, like, but it's funny, though, when you see him, you like him, but you don't think Han Solo, I think. Or maybe that's what you're saying, too. Like, you, you like, oh, he's Indiana Jones, he's this. But you can also see him in, like, regarding Henry. Like, oh, yeah, but he's a good actor, too. Like, they're, you're connecting to him outside of his character. You want to be his friend. And maybe you don't want to necessarily be the friends of the other character. I don't know. It's just an interesting thing, like, when one person pops – on these things. And other people just don't pop in that same way. It's like, no, no, more of that person. But no, no, you're too much of that person. But he is so much, huh, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, like, <laughs> It's a hard, it's like a hard celebrity math, but I feel like he really, uh, you know, he avoided it and he gets the most work. I mean, he's the one that I think arguably has becomes the superstar.
1: I think that's true. Then doing Blade Runner and then doing the new Blade Runner and then forgetting to wear a costume.
0: (laughs) But it is funny because Carrie Fisher is beautiful. She's talented and her career should have, I think, exploded the same exact way. But it just, yeah, it's weird. Maybe the buns on the side of her head or whatever. Maybe the chain
1: metal bikini.
0: Maybe the cocaine. Uh, And not to be, you know, not. (laughs) But, you know, look, she's very open about it. She had some issues. So Amy, today on the show, we have a very special guest. Um, This is someone who has a very special connection to Star Wars. Not an actor and not a director of the film, but someone who I think's uh, hand is all over the film, and even the second film. It is the editor of Star Wars, uh, Paul Hirsch, who actually recently wrote a book called A Long Time Ago in a Cutting Room Far, Far Away. Um, We're very lucky to sit down with him today. So welcome, Paul. Um, Thanks for being on the show.
1: Paul, I want to start with something that I'm sure you've been asked a lot, but I am so curious. Okay. When you were editing Star Wars, I mean, what kind of a movie did you think it would be? What kind of a reaction do you think it would get?
3: Well, um, I was excited about working on it based on some production stills I had seen. And um, even just the title alone, knowing nothing about it was exciting because uh, up to that point, space movies had been, you know, about... Uh, going to the moon, or uh, Mars, or, you know,
4: 2001
3: was about going to Jupiter, but the idea of Star Wars, wars out in space so far that there are different stars was was a brand new, exciting concept to me. And then I saw these production stills without having known anything about the story, Um, but I saw photographs of... Um, the robots and the, the sand crawler and the Jawas and, and the Wookiee and, you know, and I just got very excited about it. Uh, George had expressed an interest in working with me someday, but had told me that he had already hired an editor for the picture. So I when I saw these stills, I said to my wife, I said, you know, it's nice that he wants to work with me someday, but I really wish it were this one, you know. And uh, as it turned out, uh, I got the call.
0: So I know you came into this process late, but also a little bit early, because I can't imagine that all the special effects were completely done at this point. And I know the special effects had their connections to older serials, but I imagine it was hard to visualize the film. Am I right or wrong about that?
3: It had already been edited once by an editor in England. George was unhappy with the cut, and then his wife, Marsha, and Richard Chu had started re-editing the picture, When they realized they needed more help and invited me to join them. So Marsha was tasked with uh, building the end battle sequence, and because there was no such thing as previs in those days, she was using um, World War II black-and-white documentary footage of aerial combat in the South Pacific to stand in for the shots that were going to be exteriors of the spaceships so she would have she had footage of the pilots in their cockpits and she had footage of leia and the leaders of the rebellion in their command center um but she didn't have any exteriors so um she had to make do with these black and white shots as placeholders uh so yeah it, it made it confusing as to um what we were going to be seeing. In fact, it didn't have any relation to what we were going to be seeing. But you knew that if you saw a black-and-white shot, it was an exterior of a ship. But you could track the, the, the battle through the dialogue uh, when there were exchanges between the command center and the pilots and whatever they sang over their comm systems and so forth. So there was a dramatic structure in the script that you could relate to, even though visually... All you knew was that, you know, black and white equals
0: exterior. And what would you say was the biggest difference between your cut and the first cut? Like, what do you think you brought to this process that, you know, that uh, in your relationship with George?
3: I went through and found that some of the scenes were overcut. Some of the scenes, they were uh, paced too slowly. Uh, There was no kind of overarching single problem. So... I was going through each scene, and Richard and I were sort of leapfrogging over each other. Uh, I was going through each scene and making the uh, the scenes themselves be more elegant, I would say. The cutting points that had been chosen were all off, so it gave the film a kind of a clunky, awkward feel. Uh, sometimes it's just two or three frames difference that can make all, you know, and it makes a world of difference. But uh, I would say that the biggest contribution I made... Was a suggestion to remove some scenes from the first reel that um, I found particularly problematical.
0: Are those the scenes with like Big's dark lighter, like the the yeah, yeah. okay,
3: yeah. These are the scenes at uh, at Moshi Power Station, right? Um, I said to George, "What is this place?" He says, "Well, it's a teen hangout." So I said, "Well, how are we supposed to know that?" <laughs> it was hard to make out, and then the dialogue between. Luke and Biggs was a very expository, and all information we were going to find out at some point anyway. I just thought, well, what if we, what if we just take it all out, you know? Right. So we did, and we looked at it. And the uh, the real great benefit of doing that was that when R two and three PO land on the planet, now we we don't know that it's inhabited by humans. We're introduced to Luke organically in the story as opposed to just arbitrarily cutting to him in the middle of the opening battle.
0: Well, you know, I wanted to talk to you also about the transition, like the wipes in Star Wars. They're very iconic. And was that something that was inspired by the serials of the day? Was that a conversation that you and George had? Uh, I always liked wipes. The very first
3: film I did was called Hi, Mom, that I, uh, was directed by Brian De Palma. And we used wipes in that because I, I always thought they were fun. I, you know, in the rest of my career, I used wipes frequently. And the reason for it is that I find that transitioning from one static image to another, um, it's nice to have some movement across the screen as opposed to just cutting or dissolving. Or if you're going from a moving shot to a static shot or vice versa, um, I think it helps the transitions. I suggested to George that we tried, and he immediately saw how logical it was since the picture was based on these old, you know, um, serials. And we tried it, we liked it, we went with it, you know?
1: One of the things when I look at your awesome resume that does make Star Wars different than the rest of them is just that that's the film that's most famous for having so many different cuts after the fact, so many little tweaks made to it. And I kind of want to ask you, in your heart of hearts, who shoots first, Han or Greedo?
3: (laughs) You know, it's funny. I'm I don't track these these changes to you know, I know there's a huge culture built around uh Star Wars. Uh, you have to be blind and deaf not to know it, but the fact is I don't watch my old movies and I haven't really tracked the changes that have gone on. Somebody right. said to me the other day, "What do you think of McClunky?" and I said, "What is that?" <laughs>
1: Well, and you also came back to the Star Wars franchise for Empire, which had a different director, but I was curious, you after that first film was such a hit, did the second film feel different?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, um, Kirsch was a much more experienced director than George, and uh, had a different camera style, and, and uh, different visual style. Um, but the script was very solid. Uh, we locked the picture within a month after the end of Principal photography was not came together very easily and quickly.
0: And did you do a lot of test screenings on either one of these films, or are they, you know, did they kind of avoid that?
3: Uh, We had one test screening of Star Wars, and we made no changes after that. George told me, he says, uh, Marsha had gone off to work with Marty Scorsese on New York, New York. And he said, I spoke to Marty, I got Marsha to get a week off from work so she can come back and help us make changes after the preview. Now, I had no experience with previews. Right. Uh, When I worked with De Palma in New York, we never previewed the picture. Some were hits, some were flops, but we didn't preview. Later on, when we previewed pictures, some were hits, some were flops. It doesn't really, you know, change things that much. You can learn things from previews, though. By the time that we previewed Star Wars, we'd been over the pictures so many times and really getting down to the, the really fine strokes, you know. So I said to George, "Well, what do you think what do you think there is left to change?" And he said, "Well, previews always mean changes." I thought, "Okay, I don't know, you know, I was just still learning at that point." And uh we had this screening at the North Point Theater in San Francisco, and the audience was it was one of the most spectacular screenings I've ever been in in my life cuz people literally leaped out of their seats when uh, we cut to hyperspace. The Fox executives were there and everything and we went outside afterwards. I said to George, I said, what do you think? He said, well, I guess we'll just leave it alone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I imagine, was there any pressure in that second film knowing like, okay, now you have to carry the weight of this? It's, you know, it is, I think sequels are always a tough job and, you know, especially at this point in, in cinema, like, you know, it, it's, it had so much attention on it. Like, were you nervous at all for the sequel or was it, again, just you let it ride?
3: No, no, it was, it was exciting. I mean, this was the
0: most highly anticipated
3: film. I mean, to, to be on this picture was, was a, a treat. You know, I mean, yeah. it, was a, it was an honor, and it was just, you know, very exciting. The, the audience had to wait three years for, for Empire. So the desire to see what happened next was huge.
0: And I just have to say that, you know, I think for many people out there who have not, you know, sat behind an editor, worked with an editor, you don't realize the importance of this job and how influential your job is to crafting a film and, and what a collaborative effort it is. And you can understand it even a little bit more when you pick up. Uh, your book a long time ago in a cutting room far, far away. And it kind of details your 50 years of editing. It's a great book. And it's just great to kind of see your perspective on working with all these amazing directors. And like I said, you really define my youth. Uh, these are all the films that are so, so important to me and, and remain important to this day. Like a movie like Planes, Trains, Automobiles, I, I think uh, it's as fresh as it is today as it was when it was released. And the same thing for Star Wars and, and, and many of these other films.
3: Well, um, I'm blushing. Thank you very much for all, all those nice things you said.
0: Well, thank you for your time, and uh, and definitely check out uh, Paul's book. We appreciate you having you on the show. Yeah, likewise. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Bye,
3: bye,
0: bye. So, Star Wars opens up on 32 screens when it opens on May 25th, 1977, and I got a little bit of a newsreel from it.
2: Star Wars.
0: It is more than just a successful movie, it is a box office phenomenon.
3: The film is breaking attendance records all over the country. Not since Jaws have so many people stood in line to see a movie. Alan Ladd Jr., an executive at 20th Century Fox,
2: whose film it is, talked about the reasons for its appeal.
4: I think it's
3: just good and evil, the simplicity of the the whole story is what really makes it work. It's a fantasy,
0: and uh, I think we all grew up in a fantasy world, and I think that, that it works on that level. So, I mean, it's so interesting that they're showing this all these clips of people, but do you think that that's – we've been talking a lot about why this movie resonates, and do you think – is it that simplistic? Is it that that reason? to I mean, it's like The Wizard of Oz. It's it's. There's no shade of gray here. I mean, is that why you think this movie works?
1: I mean, it's interesting that they've – Done what they can to take away any shades of gray, you know, most right. famously with making Han Solo not shoot first. You know, that like, they're like, let's make it even more. Now they
0: kind of make him om- like almost shoot first. It's weird. He has his hand. On, oh. It's a clunky moment. Um, you know, it's a bizarre, <laughs> a bizarre moment.
1: I mean, it's super bizarre. Like. I mean, when I was reading articles about the time, they're like, they think it might be so popular because it's coming out of that Rocky ethos. You know, we had just seen Rocky and we were into crowd pleasers and then this is the next year. I mean, I I like that they go,
0: not since Jaws if people stood online. line. I mean, not since last summer? Yeah. Okay, cool.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it's weird to me that we haven't stopped standing in line. That's really what's so strange to me about it. You know, we've had rises and falls in national cynicism since then. And yet this is just still the thing. It's just still the thing, and it's kind of bizarre to me, honestly. And yeah. I, I don't know what that is. I mean, to well, me, I actually do really, I actually really do kind of blame the VCR that we never had to put it away for anything. We never had anything replace it in our hearts. Well, we could then, just keep watching then you it. must
0: like Disney because Disney puts their stuff uh, like on moratorium. They put stuff away so you can't get it at all times. So that's yeah, a great argument. <laughs> um, but now, Amy, I will ask you this though, because I think what we've been wrestling with is it's undeniable. This movie is undeniable. It is in our blood. It's there but yet it's 13 on the AFI list this is sig- after
1: raging bull i was just going to say a lot.
0: significantly lower than raging bull and i'm and i and i'm looking at this and i i mean when i was talking to you earlier we were talking about the AFI list i go the AFI list i think represents or should represent uh you know the top 10 the most influential films of our time like they have to be in the top 10 like it has to be very special to be in the top 10 And the fact that this is not in the top 10 is kind of mind-boggling to me.
1: It is. I mean, I feel like even though to me, at my core, I am a Lucille Bluth. Right. And if you don't know what what I mean by that, here you go.
0: Here's some money. Go see a Star Wars.
1: That's basically how I feel about Star Wars. It does feel like it should be in the 10s, even though I almost resent that I feel that way.
0: Well, because, look. Citizen Kane, The Godfather, Casablanca, Raging Bull, Singing in the Ring, Gone with the Wind, Lawrence of Arabia, Schindler's List, Vertigo, Wizard of Oz.
1: It feels like you take out Raging Bull in a heartbeat. I don't even understand.
0: Absolutely. And I, yeah. I, I think you could take out a. I think there could be some switches here too, because, you know, even a movie like 2001, another space film, you know, there's a lot of. That top 10 is. A, now, as we're going through, uh, I see a reordering and a slight reordering, but this movie. I would, even, I could make an argument that Star Wars should be in the top five, like because like singing in the Rain* and Star Wars, like what is more important in American film culture? I,
1: I mean, if it was if it was straight up influence, it's hard to imagine anything else. Yeah. Like, really mastering it besides, besides Wizard of Oz, to be honest. Although I don't want to just only go on influence because,
0: ah! But, but I mean, but but, you, but this movie is also technically aware that this is doing things that it never had done. So we're talking about technical achievement. We're talking about cultural achievement. We're talking about uh, the launching of stars, you know. Uh, and
1: the launching of wars.
0: Uh, wars, star <laughs> wars. But I mean, we're you know, from you look at it from every technical part, the music, the villain, there, it, it checks every single box. I can't tell you off the top of my head the names of the characters in Singing in the Rain. I can't tell you off the top of my head the names of the characters, uh, you know, in Vertigo. Right? You know, it's like, I mean, not to say that, I'm not taking anything away from them, but like, there has to be something like the fact that most people know that Darth is Luke's father, and they've never seen Star Wars. You know, that means there's something about these movies that exists. I think it's, I think it's definitely a top five movie. I think it's definitely a top five movie.
1: Can we make a trade? Yeah. I'll put it in a top five if we never have another one.
0: Well, I mean, all right, well, d- then I lose this trade, I guess. <laughs> uh, Why do we
1: need another one? We have the, this one. The first one's the best. Can we just call it quits?
0: You know, I think that we'll always have the first one. We don't need to – We're no no one's making the argument to put anything else on this list. I'm not sitting here going like – Rise of Skywalker needs to be on the top 10, or I'm not even making the argument that I normally make, which is like trilogies should be in here. I don't think the trilogy should be in here. This, this movie by itself, I'm very happy with. I like Empire more. I know we could get into that, but I don't think any, this only needs to be here. Before, you know, we're talking about the, uh, the before series. Like I do believe in, well, I, I make an argument. Lord of the Rings, I make an argument. This, I'm very happy with the one film.
1: I mean, I really am open to making this cultural deal though. Like- If we can just stop and just be like, okay, it did it. Can we move on as a culture? Right. It can go in the top five, then we carry on with our lives.
0: Well, look, I mean, it would be interesting if Hollywood did a moratorium on all remakes. You can't, nothing on Broadway, nothing on stage, no samples in music for one year.
1: Wouldn't it be nice to live in a culture that created things that didn't exist when we were born?
0: Well, yeah, but we, you know, we'd have to- every
1: Marvel character existed when I was born. Everything existed already. I'm bored.
0: But then you don't get people like, you know, like Reggie Hudlin, who brings a mentality to Black Panther that reinvents what Black Panther is. Yes, Black Panther existed before Reggie Hudlin did the comic book run of that. And if there's no Reggie Hudlin doing Black Panther, then there's no Black Panther in the Marvel universe that becomes this other gigantic iconic thing. I think the great- People can add their own influence to something and make something even better. I think.
1: But what if they invented a brand new thing? Just brand new. Wouldn't it be nice?
0: I, I look. I'm all for it. You know, I'm not against it. I talked about Frozen. You are against me. That's a brand new thing. That's true. Uh, you know. Uh, but we we talk about brand new things all the time. But uh, and sometimes they work. You know. Um, and but then sometimes you get something like Mad Max. I mean, that's also the same filmmaker reinterpreting his own work and it's genius and it's just as influential and such. So I don't think it, I don't think that remakes are bad. I think, I don't think, I think that sometimes the commercialization of dipping back into the well is bad. I think, you know, are we making a home alone sequel? Like, do we need that? We've already done four. Why now? Why again? You know, it's like, do we need these things? And, and I don't know. I don't know.
1: I don't know. I mean, the only the the main thing that I have ever found historically in the favor of franchises, and I'm going to take it back to Greek mythology for a yes, little bit. Sure. Like in Greek mythology, they didn't have a lot of new characters. You know, they used the same characters over and over again as well. Yeah. Like if so, if you were making a story about Medea, if you were putting on right. a play about Medea. You would just like take the Medea myth and then you would shape it how you wanted to for who you were, what your stone, your, your style right. was as a writer. And so the different Medeas that exist, they're very different. You know, the the Euripides one is very different. It's much more feminist than all the other ones that came up, um, before it. And so I do think it's interesting when franchises exist just to see how, we've, how we change and grow with them. Right. But that's why I'm like another Death Star, eat a dick, you know?
0: Believe me, I'm not arguing that. I'm not arguing that like that every step in the Star Wars world is a great step. I, you know, I, but I like the franchise, and I like you know when I see people like Ryan Johnson tackle it, when I see people like John Favreau tackle it. I'm like, oh, these guys are doing something really interesting with it, you know. And and I hear what you're saying. Like, wouldn't I just rather watch them make their own thing?
1: Wouldn't it be nice to have something that belonged to us?
0: But I do, because I also get to see Ryan Johnson make Knives Out. And, uh, you know, I'm talking about that because that's like the follow-up to essentially The Last Jedi. It's like it doesn't preclude them. Like I get Jojo Rabbit because I get Thor Ragnarok. And that – Do you think Hitler
1: is a franchise character?
0: (laughs) Probably. He's been in enough movies. How many movies has Hitler popped up in? Uh, But, I mean – but they, I do believe that, like, that cultural week that we were talking about, the idea that, like, Scarlett Johansson and, and even Ethan Hawke, using their commercial success or parlaying that into more interesting work, that's what, you know, maybe that's the deal with the devil that we, that we make.
1: All right. Well, I'm going to let a few other people besides us have the last word. This, all right, great. This is politics talk now.
0: <laughs> all right.
1: Um, the first person, I'm uh, just going to give her a sentence, is Pauline Kale, who called the movie, quote, a box of Cracker Jacks, which is all prizes. Okay. I will give the longer negative review to somebody who we recently had on the show um, we read a review of his and then he died the week after we read his review, his John Simon. Oh yeah. He wrote that really awful pan of Annie Hall. Yes, yeah, so John um,
0: Simon who you kind of called as being really like a, a really a trash person right?
1: Well the obituaries for John Simon when he died a couple weeks ago were really interesting it was a lot of people being like he as a critic wrote himself into a hole where he was unable to love the art form he ever talked about. I mean that's really But he never wrote anything positive positive. Right? In and that, in that, that kind of broke him. His obituaries are really fascinating, and if you're into criticism, I recommend you read them. But this is what he wrote for New York Magazine about Star Wars. Star Wars is an impeccable technical achievement. A quantum, or maybe quasar, leap above 2001. But is equaling sci-fi and comic strips, or even outstripping them, worthy of the talented director of American graffiti and worth spending all that time and money on? Strip Star Wars of its often striking images and its highfalutin scientific jargon, and you get a story, characters, and dialogue of overwhelming banality, without even a quote-unquote future cast to them. Human beings, anthropods, or robots, you could probably find them all more or less like that in downtown Los Angeles today. Certainly the mentality and values of the movie can be duplicated in third-rate non-science of any place or period. Oh, dull new world! We are treated to a galactic civil war, assorted heroes and villains, a princely maiden in in distress, a splendid old man surviving from an extinct order of knights who possesses a mysterious power called the Force, and it is all as exciting as last year's weather reports. There are glimpses of interesting new animals and peculiar hybrids, but they don't stew or say anything novel. For a while, this is funny. Eventually, though, we yearn for something new. This is all trite characters and paltry verbiage. The one exception is Alec Guinness as the grand old man Ben Kenobi. He says Ben is from the Hebrew Ben to make him sound biblical and good. Kenobi, he thinks, is probably related to cannabis or hashish, for reasons you can guess. He says that Sir Alec has a wistful yet weighty dignity of tone and aspect that is all his own. Why he should waste the likes of it on Luke, who he befriends, protects, and bequeathes the force to, remains the film's one mystery. He says... Kudos are due to the production staff, but ultimately what you have is a set of giant baubles manipulated by an infant mind. Hmm. And then he says that the Force is a distressing thing that appears in various contradictory and finally nonsensical guises of facile and perfunctory bow to metaphysics. And he says that Star Wars will do very nicely for those lucky enough to be children or unlucky enough to never have grown up.
0: Hmm. I, I don't know. I like the way that one is written. Is, am I wrong in like saying <laughs> Oh, no, he's like,
1: a great writer. Yeah. He's a great writer.
0: I mean, what do you think?
1: I mean, that last line, for children are those unlucky enough to never have grown up, I feel like that should just be handed to people on fortune cookies when they complain about The Last Jedi.
0: <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, Amy, we've talked about it being on the list, and I guess there's one question, but I, I know it's probably not the case. There's probably never ever been a Star Wars reference on The Simpsons. I, mean, never, I mean, never, never,
1: right. never. I mean, if there was, it would have to come in an episode called The Worst Episode Ever.
4: I cleaned out his room. How much will you give me for this?
2: Probably nothing, but let us see. Who? Oh, handwritten script for Star Wars by George Lucas? Princess Leia's anti-jiggle breast tape? Film reel labeled alternate ending? Luke's father is Chewbacca? Oh, oh! I'll give you $5 for the box.
4: Sold. Don't oh, do it, lady. That stuff's worth thousands. Yeah, he's ripping you off.
0: <laughs>
4: well, if this is valuable, then back to the leaky basement it goes.
0: Uh, <laughs>
1: and that is how Bart gets banned from the comic book store.
0: I love it. Well, Amy, this has been a pleasure talking about this film. And if you want to continue to hear people talk about it, there's multiple podcasts. I love our friends over at the Star Wars Minute who broke down I pretty much I think all six and maybe even seven films, man, they've gone through it all minute by minute. Uh definitely check that out if you have not done that. And the Wondery Podcast did a great Star Wars story. Kind of they did Psycho, they've they've done Jaws, and they also did Star Wars. So uh worthy of checking those out as two interesting uh kind of uh, companion pieces to what we talked about today.
1: Indeed. And next week, we're going to go back to talking about the best films of the decade. I
0: cannot wait. All right. So get ready for the conclusion of our list of the best of the decade. And remember to keep on calling in and telling us what you think the best film of the decade is. But be short and sweet, because that's what we're going to probably play more than That
1: number is 747-666-5824, 747-666-5824. And you know what? I thought I would give the final word, Paul. To our friend Bill Murray.
4: Thank you. Let's go out with something really hot for these folks. A big hit out of 77. A Star Wars.